Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Last Jedi. Back on the show, we have Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Red 5, standing by. Karu Nagisa. Red 3, standing by. And Debbie Morse. Everything about that was wrong. <laughs> so you're Red 5, standing by. Yeah. Uh, both of these guys of Sequentially Yours. And a fellow I started this whole movie podcast thing off with reviewing the first six Star Wars movies, Neil Taylor, The Kid Dog. Poor Gullet will know the truth. He will stop me saying quite interesting things. Hang on, hang on. Poor Gullet? Poor Gullet. Poor Gullet? He's evolved. He's, like he's evolved. Pokemon. He's like a porg formed poor Gullet. That's, that's how he got onto that island. Brilliant. Okay. Right, now... First up, I will not be fielding any of the furious reactions from boy fans this time around. It was tiresome during The Force Awakens, and it's genuinely tedious now. It adds real-world context to critiquing, which makes it, at the very least, referencing it virtually unavoidable and detrimental to our take-home. At least because the events of the story of The Last Jedi and how they play out seem partially reactive to the reception that film got. But I'm not going to allow that perspective to dominate our show any more than I will allow the 15-minute detour to Canto Bite to dominate our running time. It constitutes a messy and distracting 10% of the runtime of the movie, so we should only really talk about it for about a tenth of our show at most. That doesn't mean that if you don't like the film, your views aren't valid or that you must like the film. Far from it. It has structural issues and it isn't as solid and consistent piece of filmmaking as The Empire Strikes Back. When your arguments are framed around what Space Wizards can and cannot do based on the previous Space Wizards movies, in a movie very deliberately framed around the painful but ultimately positive act of letting go of the past and specifically the rigid restrictions of what you think the Force is... 
I don't want to get all political cartoon about it, but mister, when that's your angle, you have just tumbled ass over dick off a bridge labeled The Point and straight down into a nest of gundarks and bantha shit. Your arguments are the bleated cries of a Gomorian guard being devoured by the rancor of progress, and when you squeal them over the internet, we all picture General Hux. When those guys decry Star Wars for going all liberal, we wonder what films you were watching. While we were enjoying seeing space Nazis get their laser moons blown up by a bunch of gleep-glop aliens that they would have happily rounded up into camps. We wonder if you've been aware of Mark Hamill railing against conservative politics on Twitter. Your boy Luke Skywalker likes to defend oppressed minorities in real life too. When you complain about women suddenly growing too big for their boots, we think back to a 19-year-old Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia insulting Peter Cushing and his Gestapo mate with the breathing issues right to their faces. We wonder how strong and inspiring she had to be and how rude to Han Solo she was until he himself stopped being quite so much of an asshole. It wasn't that he charmed her into a dutiful sandwich maker. He was just trying to be a better man and she recognized that. But these guys did not. When fan theories stretch from the predictable and sensible, Rey being a secret Skywalker or a Kenobi, to Luke being Snoke all the way up to Jar Jar Binks being the real Sith Lord behind it all, when ideas that ludicrous are clung to with religious fervor that will brook no contradiction nor self-awareness, those fan theories and the people who spout them become unbalanced, and it is no longer important nor healthy to cite them in the interests of a balanced review, which this isn't, and we've rarely laid claim to that spurious quality anyway. For all those scared little men who were intimidated by Ray and The Force Awakens, Johnson and the company have sour news for you fellows, and it's in the shape of women, 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 all over the screen. They tell men what to do, they get their own way, they express emotion and compassion, and that is portrayed as a strength. They exhibit strategy and determination, they make mistakes, and they're right and they're good women, and they're bad women, and they're women of colour, and they're the most important women in the galaxy, and they're nobodies. This is what so many switched-on people have been waiting for, in Star Wars in particular, with its history of one single woman surrounded by an ocean of men, all of whom got action figures, and her being super important in the first film, and then gradually fading to a strong support role. And then in the second trilogy, a walking womb who possessed few actual human characteristics. Then again, nobody did. Now, if the tone and representation of Last Jedi continues, that one woman from the first film is being joined by a legion. All of whom better damn well have action figures. And notably, none of them are wearing gold bikinis. I don't need to explain to you, my dear clever audience, why this concept scares the boy men so very much. From the moment... Luke reacts to being handed his lightsaber back, this sacred relic with a documented past, one which proved an essential artifact in the Thrawn trilogy, which constituted the best thing fans could get in the early 90s for a follow-up to the original three films. From the moment Luke tosses this cursed, child-slaying blade aside like Alec Guinness cruelly discarding an autograph book from a bright-eyed Star Wars-loving boy, from that moment, The Last Jedi was making a clear, forward statement that threads through the whole production in a glorious contradictory fashion. Get used to disappointment. 
Luke isn't the great warrior. Ray's parents were nobody. Snoke dies suddenly and unexpectedly without us knowing shit about him. Same for Phasma. Ray isn't a Jedi or a self-declared Grey Force user. Finn and Poe don't kiss. There is somehow another Death Star, albeit a miniaturized one. But Ishil del Toro's annoying, overacted, treacherous thief gets away with a huge crate of money and no punishment. Luke dies just as some fans stinging from the loss of Han declared he should never do in this film or they would riot. The holiest teachings of the Jedi were burned up by a drunken Yoda kicking his heels with glee. <laughs> Love that bit. And Ben Solo most definitely does not redeem himself yet. This affected me too. I came out smiling but with nagging doubts because I love The Force Awakens so much. It's still my favourite for so many reasons, and one of which was that it opened up a brand new playing field with all these amazing, lovable, hateable, pitiable, curiosity-peaking new characters. Just like the original Star Wars, it made the statement that the universe was the limit for these guys. Anything could happen. And now some incredibly significant things have happened, and they cancel out a bunch of other things that could have happened, meaning that their paths are now more firmly set. I realise I was mourning for a story that could have been, and I've been mourning the impossibility of a trilogy which gives us a strong central importance to first Han, and then Luke, and then Leia, since the end of that rotten 2016 when Carrie Fisher blew out into space and flew away from us. Had they known when she was going, we all know they would have done things differently, but that wasn't what they got, and it wasn't what we got, and quite frankly, Carrie would drawl that it wasn't what she expected either. I was disappointed. A little. But that somehow works as part of its charm. The Last Jedi doesn't just want you as a viewer to be able to accept disappointment and carry on, but to learn from it, to self-examine, to question your desires, seek out the petty feelings, laugh at the frailty and pomposity inside yourself, pulling a Yoda on us, masking deep wisdom beneath a frequently foolish frame. When the little guy himself turns up and tells us failure is the greatest teacher, these are not idle words. We cannot make life go the way we want it to, and being able to bounce back from disappointment, failure and mistakes, forgiving ourselves and others, is a vital part of true growth, both for us as viewers and for the Star Wars series itself. To that end, it has, with subtlety missed by the detractors of The Force Awakens, labelling it just a New Hope rip-off, slid all three original movies into the space of just two, and a bit. Rey had her confrontation with Ren at the end of Awakens. That was the Cloud City moment when he asked her to join him. We didn't get the cheerful, victorious medal ceremony from the end of A New Hope. We got a sobering anxiety about one of our heroes being out of action and another being gone forever. This wasn't just Ben Kenobi, who'd been on screen for 35 minutes. This was Han Solo, who'd been on screen for four films. And now he was gone forever. Or at least until he returns as a young man. We never really go. And we got a massive question mark set to the Force theme. We got the body of A New Hope, but the journey of Empire. And then with The Last Jedi, we got the body of Empire, but with the journey of Return, spun and twisted until it had a completely different outcome. Vader didn't die when he killed his Emperor to save Luke this time, and crucially, he did it for conflicted and rather selfish reasons, so he's nowhere near redeemed yet, leaving us again with a massive question mark as the Rebels celebrate not a victory, but a hairline escape at appalling cost of life. The established story pattern has now played out and anything could happen in the follow-up. Repetition and rhyme with the original trilogy are almost entirely assured in some capacity, 
But with what Last Jedi achieved, Lucasfilm would be insane not to ride this wave of new Star Wars. When you see boy fans starting petitions online to get episode 8 struck from canon, far from feeling like they have to cater more to their needs, Disney sees them as a dangerously irrational, unpredictable and toxic element of the audience. A sliver of grey on a pie chart. A minority with no understanding or concession to what best suits the majority. An unavoidable anomaly that has to be ignored in order to proceed. They are doing the very worst job of shaping Star Wars for the future. Just as the overly aggressive subset of DC fans have poisoned that well. But as for Disney... With Force Awakens, they summoned up the ghosts of the past and delivered the children of today. With Last Jedi, they challenged some of the most fundamental aspects of what we know of safe, comfortable Star Wars. Not in a hugely destructive way, but in a searching, cut-the-crap kind of midnight decision way. This leaves the future to be reshaped into something new which could not happen without this soul-searching and self-analysis. Just as Han had mellowed, aged and matured as we see him in The Force Awakens, while still feeling every bit true to his character, Luke and Leia are the same people, weathered by age, experience, disappointment and failure. It was truly wonderful to see them reunited on screen to the strains of that underappreciated theme from Return of the Jedi. This is, to many intents and purposes, Luke's movie. It's certainly Hamill's crowning performance. He represents the old, the wise and the cranky, and these new kids represent the ones who are going to carry this forwards. I love how, unlike Battlefront, the First Order are not treated with reverence and towering awesome empowerment. They are nasty, mean-spirited, anxiety-ridden, pompous, bickering children, scattered with old men who were a bit too young for the last war and are now going to bloody well drive a Star Destroyer. The kind of shitheads who like to think about the spoils of war and the acts of war, but not the consequences of war. I love seeing them humiliated. But it's that last shot and Rose Tico that I want to build this piece on because Rose came out of nowhere and brought with her what should have been here from the beginning and actually was, but got muddled up in all the sequel, prequel nonsense and especially recently in all the fanboy gatekeeping bullshit. Ask yourself, in a world of Trekkies and Trekkers, Browncoats, Tolkies, Ringers and Whovians, what is a dedicated Star Wars fan called? A Warsian? A Jedi head? A Star Wars bore? We'll come back to this. You see, Rose signifies a nobody who works behind pipes. She's not special, she's not a white male, so she's not a template. She goes out of her way to express frustration and fury at an opulent upper class profiteering from chaos and opposition. She stands for peace and love, and she acts unselfishly throughout, effecting change in small ways. She's not dressed sexily, she won't back down, and she won't be quiet, and she won't be stopped by fear, and she won't put up with hate. She is, in short, the alt Wright's worst nightmare and she's one of my new favourite heroes and I dare say a lot of ours too likely to be hated by some more than Finn who ranks around the Jar Jar levels with a subset of fans Rose is trouble to a lot of people so is Ray with her nothing background and here is something that nobody wants to say about Star Wars but I'm going to say it because you can know about a movie's troubling influence while still adoring the movie this all started with The Empire Strikes Back In Star Wars, Luke is a farm boy. Anakin Skywalker, his father, was just a good Jedi, important only to Obi-Wan and to Luke. That lasted up until the end of Empire, when the reveal changed that to Luke's father being the most important person in the galaxy. Technically, the Emperor is more important, but not to us. 
Vader was the big kahuna. We barely knew the Emperor at this point, and when he appeared in Jedi, Vader literally threw him aside. Luke's lineage suddenly became of drastic importance to us, and that informed upon all of the best drama of Return of the Jedi, including Leia's conflict on discovering her connection. Using Luke as our avatar, we went from feeling, wow, imagine if we could avenge our absent father's killer to, oh my god, my real father represents pure evil. Then with the prequels, George doubled down on the import and made Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader a prophesied chosen one, brought into being with the divine powers of the midi-chlorians. He turned Palpatine's attack dog, his Jedi hunter, into a dark messiah. This evokes a lot of very ancient cultural fixation on lineage, the use of special blood making a hero, the son of kings, important because of who he came from, not of who he is becoming. So naturally, when Rey appeared, it became a great J.J. Abrams mystery box as to who she came from, which matched and often eclipsed the interest in where she was going. So finding out that she came from nobody in particular is a big deal. It disappoints her and us, and we all have to move forward and examine the person she is now and who she will be. Star Wars is not the same. Star Wars now is not the same as Star Wars then. If anything, it's taking its dramatic and emotional beats from the Star Wars of the new generation, which emerged in the 2000s, around about the time Lucas was busy burning his house down, Harry Potter. Harry's parents were special to him, and the people who cared about them, by extension, care about Harry. But he's not the chosen one, because he's the heir of Godric Gryffindor. No, it's Tom who obsesses about his lineage, Tom who obsesses about prophecies, Tom who obsesses about special blood. He's the heir of Salazar Slytherin. He was abandoned and betrayed, and to Tom, that gives him the right to be terrible to everyone. In this case, and in the case of Ben Solo, the writers are using special blood as something that unfortunate individuals use to define themselves in cruel and destructive ways. And they even told us at the very beginning, in the third trailer, the first one you ever got to hear Ray speak. Maz, I can only assume it's Maz because we never saw this in the film, asks who she is. And she says, clear as day, only two words. I'm no one. This is my favourite trailer of all time for many, many reasons, but chiefly because it sets the whole new saga up and indicates their new direction from the out in a massively emotional and exciting manner. Finn has no roots and wants something to fight for. Kylo lives in the shadow of Vader and his story will be about escaping it. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, he introduces Aragorn, son of Arathorn, a king, ready to ascend with a very serious job to do. But in both the film and the book, Aragorn is not the true hero, and once he's in his place, he kind of fades into the background. And neither is Frodo, the boy appointed by his uncle to carry his burden. No, the true hero was always Samwise Gamgee, the gardener. The little hobbit with no responsibilities beyond trimming the verge. He has determination that gets him through the very worst of situations where the strongest of men would crumble he makes a difference and he never gives up on his friend or his home he fights to save the things he loves not to destroy the things he hates and that's rose a woman coincidentally or not named for the woman sam married we can't control whether we are of special blood or not but we can control our not giving up these characters are us in this wide terrifying, thrilling, epic saga. It's too big to be just about one man or woman with divine providence and special blood and destiny. It has to be people who can come from anywhere. And that final shot, 
a boy, a stable boy, a nobody, a young Walt from the Sword and the Stone with a broom, whether it's a tacit approval of Star Wars kid or not. Remember him, the young lad who fooled around with a stick like it was a lightsaber and was laughed at by thousands? He's us. His abandon is the reason so many people laugh. We remember goofing around with a pretend lightsaber battling stormtroopers in our back garden and whether we laughed at him cruelly for being such a loser, too old and somehow too fat to still be doing that. And we don't understand where the tension in our laughter comes from or whether we laughed at him in embarrassed recognition of our own desire to pretend to be Darth Maul right there in 2002. Whether we like it or not, that foolish playing boy is us. Because Star Wars is us. That's why there's no such thing as a Star Wars fan name. Star Wars is for everyone, and it was from the beginning, and it should continue to be. That was the secret of the 1977 original, exercising its hero's journey with beautiful simplicity and tapping into the monomyth that has abided just as long as special blood. Star Wars was about everyone. Empire and Jedi made it about Luke and Vader. The prequels made it about Anakin. The Force Awakens made it about Star Wars. Rogue One was a war in the stars, and The Last Jedi finally brought it home to be about everyone again. Not you personally, everyone. We'll do a reverse Rogue One. Like, we start out with a huge amount of praise. We'll go to its actual structural problems and, like, things that are problematic with uh, the, the, uh, the Last Jedi. And then we can just carry on to everything that's good. Is yeah, that, that all right? That's, just get, yeah, just get the shit mean? out of the way. Like, the stuff that the, the people being persnickety don't mention because they're too busy looking at the superficial. This, right. Let's mention the Cinema Sins thing here. Because I've just been having another argument about it on Twitter, and I hate arguing on Twitter at all. Like, because I just, I was saying this earlier to sh- today to Sharon. Someone was lamenting the fact that you can't have a conversation anymore on Twitter at me because I didn't. Because of course you ever could. Because <laughs> yeah. I did. Because I didn't want to hear his itemized list of why this this movie sucks. I just, I'm not interested. I, I you know, I say I don't mind that you hate the Last Jedi or just don't like the Last Jedi or just thought it was weak. I don't mind. It's not. It's neither hurting me nor of particular interest to me for like i don't need to be told it it's like if you just come back from holiday and you're like oh i just went to malaga and then someone says oh let me tell you about malaga and gives you a 20 point list of everything that sucked about malaga and doesn't really care that you're tr- you're just sitting there waiting and like at the end i still enjoyed it a lot but thank you for telling me why you hated it but twitter sucks for this because it's like ha- trying to have a conversation with no, no, some- no, 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 no. back up twitter sucks full stop yes okay but twitter <laughs> specifically sucks and here's why because it's like trying to have a conversation with someone and you're in the same room as them but you're separated by a sheet of completely opaque material so you can't see each other but there's a small hatch where you can pass each other written notes and you're having a lengthy argument with them and you're busy writing the next three points you've got and then a reply to your last point comes through and you're like no i'm busy i'm gonna i'll check that in a second and you're too busy making your next point to really pay attention to the other person you're not talking with them you're talking at them that's why twitter sucks hmm. 
And when you're fighting with them, you're fighting at them. Do you know why? Because everybody desperately wants to be heard. I've noticed this. I'm, I'm, Twitter's down for me at the moment. I'm having a break because it's been driving me crazy. And the, the essence of it just seems to be everybody is shouting into the void, desperately wanting somebody to hear them. Mm. But you can't reply to a tweet with the listening indicators. You can't just go, "Mm -hmm." Mm mm-hmm, yeah. Well, I agree. technically liking Nod. is yeah, exactly, is doing that. Exactly. You're not saying anything. What people You're are going, looking mm-hmm. for is likes and retweets because that gives them affirmation that the things that they're saying validate make me. sense. And I am it's totally what? a sucker for this. I am addicted to just being validated on Twitter. Oh, I got six retweets there. Was but this is not, um, and I'm not saying here that that validation is is childish and, and pathetic and people shouldn't be looking for it. Absolutely the opposite. People desperately need it. But Twitter is really not the place that you're going to get it. It is a cruel, impersonal mistress. Yeah. Okay, but I was... Debating with someone about Cinema Sins, because I, I was just like, okay, Cinema Sins fucking sucks. Again, it's damaging to an entire generation of young movie watchers, principally because a lot of them haven't seen anywhere near as many films as we have. A lot of them haven't had been shaped in critical thinking by other better, like far infinitely better movie critics yet. Like, if you were eight years old, go back to when you were eight. If Cinema Sins was the thing everyone was watching to do with movies and you watched that, you'd think you knew about movies from watching Cinema Sins. You'd think it was funny. And so people go, oh, I just, I think it's just a laugh. It's just a joke. It's just for lols. It's like, you may think it's funny, but it doesn't matter that you think it's funny. Some people are using it for guidance, going, if Inside Out's that bad, I won't bother seeing it. No. It's fucking poison. It has poisoned the minds of too many people. They got 7 million subscribers and an average of 1 million views per video. That's influence. Far too many are looking for cinema sins to pass judgment on this film. But if everything's shit, then everything's shit. And the emphasis on needing to be entertaining, and I'm doing that in air quotes because it's only entertaining to some people, obviously, Um, but the need to be entertaining completely undermines anything else that you might be trying to do in terms of critique. I remember um, doing an essay for my degree and I cited Empire magazine and I lost marks for that. And my tutor told me that I should be citing... Sight and Sound. Uh, sight and Sound. Yeah. And basically... I was told the same thing. Um, magazines. If, if I was Credited going to magazines. use magazines, yeah. it should be um, of quality, not entertainment. Those people would eat their head if they could see what passes for critique out there at the moment. <laughs> okay. But there's... Um, watch Sustaining Stupidity, Why Cinema Sins is Terrible by Bob Vids. Bob Vids and Sean are the two channels you need to be looking for for this. If you've watched the film and Everything Wrong With Video is about, the first thing you'll notice is that the series is almost entirely misinformation. From misinterpretations to factual errors to a fundamentally flawed understanding of writing and filmmaking, CinemaSins has mastered the art of being consistently wrong. 
This cruel joke of a bad joke of a criticism series in that cinema sends around a million views per episode, which inevitably results in a lot of people taking their misinformation seriously and spreading it, regardless of its satirical value. Read a comments section for any CinemaSins video and you'll find people saying things like, I just watched it film and thought this was great. Now let's watch CinemaSins to realize the shit I missed. And here I am. Thanks, dude. It's like watching the whole movie in 15 minutes. Thanks, CinemaSins. Never was going to see the movie. Keep up the kick-ass content. Wow. This is absolutely not what I thought the movie was going to be about. Trippy. Not one I'd watch. The implication with that last quote being that CinemaSins spoiled the entire movie for the person, which robbed it of a potential sale while misrepresenting it. So despite CinemaSins' insistence that they're not reviewers, a significant portion of their audience is using their Everything Wrong With series as review to inform themselves about the quality of films. And by the way, all these comments were taken from the Everything Wrong With video for Get Out, one of the best films to come out in the past few years. Don't know about you, but that feels pretty gross to me. You know, he, he purports this to be just for lols and just for jokes, but then when he does his actual take on the movie, a lot of the points he conveys in The Cinema Sins are also in there. So which is it? Is it like, you know, Cinema Sins is all, you know, in character, everything wrong with is all just a character, it's all just satire, or is that actually what you think? And then when you look at how each one is constructed, he watches the movie for a few seconds, he pauses it, he makes a shitty little comment, quip, and then he moves on. And like he's not observing what's going on around it. He's not referring back to something that that might be in reference to. It's all, what are you seeing in the moment immediately? What doesn't make sense about the last four seconds you watched? And a lot of the time, it contradicts itself along the way. Flip-flopping between don't explain anything to me and I have no fucking idea what's going on. And when he finds out the answer to something he asked a lot earlier, he doesn't go back and correct it or reference the fact that it's now been answered. It's another sin. Bing! Tagged up. It is an erosion of creative quality. It is staring at something and the whole world degrading into shit. Cinema Sins is the worst thing to happen to movies. This is how we become the society in idiocracy. Not the failing education system, which would probably get us there, but it's going too slow. This is going to get us there faster. Within... 50 years, there won't be a person alive who knows how to write an original idea. Everyone will have only experience adapting other people's shit. We are, we are breeding out originality and creativity. And we're going to create a cultural dilution that we will not recover from. We won't. Somewhere right now, there's a kid. He's 15. He's sitting in high school and he has ideas. He probably sketches them in his notebook. But by the time he comes to age where he can be creative for a living, there's a 99% chance that it's going to be the soulless recreation of another generation's work. And that's tragic. Everyone with dollar signs in their eyes flashing over there. And it's not going to stop. It won't stop because the general public is already kind of like idiocracy people bullshit and we're losing our art truly creative people can't get funding i'm not i'm not making this video for jokes i'm not joking around this is a serious cultural problem in america that we are dumbing down our entertainment they just jam whatever they want down our throats and repeat it so many times that before we even had a chance to decide that we hate it we're used to it and it's familiar and we're singing along 
and we want to die. That's what he actually feels. That's the truth to him. Well, his response, Cinema Sins, is not making young people more discerning. It's not inspiring creativity. It's encouraging them to see the building blocks of fiction for their component parts and to hate that. And he's encouraging deliberate misinterpretation of story. So if you're wondering why the internet is becoming an increasingly more hostile place, I got two words for you. Bad teachers. And why would we rant about this now? Well, glad you asked. Because a hell of a lot of the criticism being leveled at The Last Jedi is not going for the actual structure of it, is not going for the actual weaknesses of the film. It's going for what appear to be very surface-level cinema sins. I've seen this and I don't like it. Outraged barbs at minutia. A couple of people have recommended Cinema Wins to me, and while I applaud the efforts to turn this table around and actually just spam a film with praise, it's still not massively conducive to critical thinking. A nice balance in between, one that actually caters to the exact same audience, honest trailers. One of the issues is that Cinema Sins, the younger Cinema Sins viewers, don't know what else is out there. Now I could point you towards 10 really great critics. But ultimately, if you want just that satirical laugh, unlike Cinema Sins, Honest Trailers clearly loves movies. And while they can sometimes be kind of shitty about it, they're pretty observant. The format requires them to have an overview of the movie rather than just what's happening in this individual second. They're not heckling. These are sly, sideways glances. But if you cruise through YouTube right now, you'll see legions of 20 Reasons Why The Last Jedi Sucks videos, which bear remarkable resemblance to everything wrong with The Last Jedi in 37 minutes. And they're all the same, missing the point, non-reasons. Now, some of these are coming from kids, and that's on the bad teachers, but bad teachers have been around for a long time. And overwhelmingly, it's people who've been here since the beginning. I was there on opening night in 1977. Sure you were. This is a travesty of Star Wars. Yep. This is millennial Star Wars. Time moves in linear fashion. It's one of the themes of the film. This makes the Star Wars holiday special look like Shakespeare. Okay, now you're just insane. That's not me saying that any criticism of uh, The Last Jedi should be immediately discounted. And we'll now move on to the points that actually are a bit weaker. Go for it, guys. Thank you for bearing with us on that. Yeah. So Canto Bite is a bit of a problem, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the things that don't necessarily work structurally in this film are so weighted in terms of reinforcing the theme that I don't mind it nearly as much. Like the whole, the whole issue with Canto by basically doing the whole parallel narrative with the fleet, it kind of, it robs the fleet of a little bit of the tension because you're jumping back and forth between Finn and Rose who seem to have a lot more time than the fleet does before the fleet runs out of fuel. And they're forced to, introduce a lot of things in on canto bite in order to make it work at all and then there's you know a a cgi creature chase sequence which is kind of hard to to really ground in terms of stakes in in a film that in the first 10 minutes gives you very human and immediate serious stakes to work with so like 
if there's going to be a weak point to the film, I think that's the easiest one to point to. Um, but again, like because of what it accomplishes, like you can draw a straight line from Canto bite to why the last shot works so well. It doesn't bother me nearly as much as it probably should. Okay. I, I, I might be the lone one. I never had a problem with any of the Canto bite stuff. It informs a lot on Finn who you still have to remember is very wide eyed and is probably the most innocent character out of everybody because he has mm. no concept of, the real, I was going to say real world, but I suppose real universe. You know what I mean? He yeah. is, he's, he's only known the first order in that particular way of life. So he's, ha- again, he's having his eyes open. I, again, I, it also shows that it adds to widening the way the universe works with the mega rich, um, and how obviously they get their profits. Um, could have perhaps, I suppose my weakest point is I really didn't like Benicio del Toro. Not, uh, not even his character. It was just yeah. like, I, as a person, his performance. I didn't get his performance <laughs> at all. It's like, what are you going for here? I think for the me, new Jack Sparrow. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think for me, the whole Canto Bite section, because um, again, I I had very little issue with it as I was watching it. That it's it's probably the only part of the film um, that my mind drifted a little bit. Most of it, I was totally engaged even though I was in a packed cinema and it's really difficult for me to engage um, with cinema when I'm surrounded by people that's why I I actually don't like going to the theatre to see films that much unless it's something really really big that I can totally uh, fixate on and everybody around me is totally fixating on it as well otherwise my I, I find it very difficult to have a genuine emotional reaction when there are other people around the whole segment for me was kind of a, a greater than the sum of its parts Mm. situation that there are facets of it that I thought were not great. There were facets of it that I thought were genuinely weak. Um, I was not keen on um, Benicio Del Toro's character. I wasn't keen on the way he played it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there was actually a, there was a brief moment <laughs> when he first turned up that I thought it was Andy Circus, and um, this this was when he was lying down Secret on the bench twin Snoke. because um, Benicio del Toro is a lot taller than Andy Circus. Uh, yeah. So as soon as he stood up, I realised it couldn't possibly be him. Um, but um, but then I was thinking later, it actually would have been so much better if it had been Andy Circus. Yeah. It would, yes. Um, but um, I got this feeling. It was like, oh, Benicio del Toro. Um, oh, he's doing a bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, there were there were some little random bits of of slapstick and misdirect in the casino itself, um, and sort of little visual jokes that I found more distracting than clever and quirky. Mm. Um, the bit where the the little guy kept putting coins, coins into, into BBA. BBA that does get paid off in an annoying off. kind of it way. It does yeah. get paid off, but I yeah. just I just felt like it went on for a little bit too long, yeah. and um, it, it just something about it just didn't quite sit right. However, like you say, the the sum of everything that happened in there, and the tone of it, and the themes, and especially. Um, Rose's connection with mm. what's going on in that whole area makes it worth it. I, I'm willing to take those um, those weaker elements for the sake of what it brings to the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. With Cantabite, what got me through it was how it was set up. 
with Rose saying, you know, it's a terrible place with the worst people in the universe. And Demi, like, leaned over and whispered to me, a hive of scum and villainy, even. Yeah, 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 exactly what I thought. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And they set that up on purpose, and then you get there, and it is a hive of scum and villainy, but it's not the one that you expect. These Mm. are, in fact, terrible people who have done terrible things and make money on the pain and suffering of others. Absolutely. Even billionaire Mouse has done war crimes. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But although that was kind of, when Finn's walking around with his mouth open going, oh my God, everyone's so beautiful, everything looks so amazing. I'm sat there going, are you crazy? These people are responsible for millions of deaths, obviously. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about Finn, and that's probably why actually the Finn-Rose combination is my favourite, is he is, again... He's that innocent character who knows no different. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think that's why the pairing of Rose and, and Finn for this particular section works so well. It's because Rose knows the truth and she points it out to it, and you sort of see the real. You see that realization in Finn drop, and I like that. That there's a Finn gets a lot more character growth, but it's very subtle mm. character growth in this one. And I've 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 liked Finn from the from the off. I really have. Mm. I find him to be the the character I, I i want to know more about because here's this g- child who, who never knew his parents is brought up in the first order is literally brainwashed into being in the first order and breaks away from it and is his his constant struggle with wanting to get away from it in the, in the force awakens where he wants to run away which is his hero's call because he comes back when, he, when you know when he's needed, you sort of have you sort of wonder at the start of this one where he he it looks like he's he's running because he's a coward, but is he running because he's a coward or is he running because he is trying to make sure that Ray comes back? And then a lovely scene where Rose just shocks him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah. That's a very good point that you make, Neil. Because the like the the moment we see Finn kind of turn around is when he sees the children that this system is oppressing, and and no one needs to like lean over and speak directly to the audience. Like, Remember how Finn was also a child person who was taken advantage of, but we we understand that it's like oh, of course he sees children being oppressed by the system, and as soon as he understands that this is built on the backs of their suffering, he's like, yeah, no, let's ride some giant camel dog cats through this and just tear it up. That's fun. We were discussing this um, yesterday. We, we took a car trip to Carter's parents, and so we, we were debriefing, and it kind of solidified for me. I, I want to say first, I did really like the Canto Bite stuff. I thought there was a lot of good stuff in there. I love Rose. I love the Finn and Rose back and forth. I, I thought that was great. However... I think the sticking point for a lot of people is the fact that this suddenly feels like a different movie. Because mm-hmm. this is suddenly about class when nothing in this movie previously has really been about class. It was the two pieces didn't fit together real well. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of, there was a lot of creaking against each other. <laughs> so like the uh, Galaxy Force ship just trying to get out of its space dock. Just, nah, yeah. <laughs> but everyone on board's going... Yes. Yeah. That said, I think that's a really important idea and theme to be brought into. Yeah, it. and to be introduced and now. And to be yeah. talked about. 
Um, and I'm, I am hoping that um, even if it doesn't continue um, once J.J. Abrams takes episode nine back, uh, that Ryan Johnson will continue with some of those hmm. ideas in his own trilogy. Dude, episodes uh, 10, 11 and 12 could be we're going to take you rich bastards down. This, you know the scary thing about this is, do you, basically, Abrams pitched his idea for Nine today. Yeah. That's that, so weird. That is scary. And Ryan Johnson apparently got a blank slate. He wasn't told you have to hit these beats. He was told, just, you know, like, having watched episode seven, write episode eight. And we're like, that, that, that's mental. It's, it's, it comes into my sticking point with this film, and I, I don't know where I fall on this idea. And it's basically this film is a massive hit of the reset, reset switch. Hmm. The Republic's gone. You have the First Order becoming the Empire and taking control, and the uh, Resistance uh, Rebellion is literally devastated down to how many people we have left on the Falcon at the end. Hmm. I, I, I'm, I, part of me is like. Part of me doesn't like that idea because it means everything that came before is kind of pointless, but I like the fact that moving forward, everything we, everything has a meaning past this point, you know, to rebuild and try again, which is the overall theme of the, the film seems to be going for, is throwing away what you thought you knew and start again fresh, mm-hmm. fix the problem instead of having this deep-rooted problem still in there. And the element of that that I really, really appreciate is the uh, the notion that there is no you defeat the bad guy and then everything is fixed. Um, you get to the end of the battle and then all of the other problems are magically solved. Mm. Everyone the gets a medal, except is, Exactly. The world is continuous. You can remove the tyrant. You can defeat the over-authoritative police chief. You can, uh, I don't know, burn down the... Laird's Castle. I don't know where I'm going with that one. <laughs> you don't like Scottish Laird's, I just, no. I'm just, I'm trying to pick out high you can, level people. You can plug up Billionaire Mouse's hole. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you can impeach the incompetent president. Um, there will still incompetent be... Incompetent is the kindest way you could put it. Yes, I know. Um, we could there... ball at the president. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but my point being, there is still going to be so much that needs fixing after that thing is done. It You don't get the happy ending and now you don't have to do any more work. That's mm. not how it runs. Um, Billionaire Mouse had grandchildren. Yeah. And now Blood Feud is on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there that is. But the, the, it's, it's an ongoing journey and you can, you can now, it's long enough that you can dip in and out of the various elements of it as you choose. And I really, really like that. Yeah. One thing that um, just does not come across in the movie that actually, and I hate being the, well, if you look at the supplementary material stuff, but... Uh, something <laughs> hey, that's that, usually my job. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you read the book Sorry, on Neil. this, yeah. <laughs> the accompanying no, novel. But uh, I'm a big, big, big fan of Charles Soule's um, Poe Dameron comics, and there's a wonderful scene in there where Leia is kind of looking out over the resistance and saying, you know, when we were the Rebellion, we had thousands of pilots. We've got maybe a dozen here. Mm. And that was before that was before Force Awakens. Yeah. It's And she's talking about how it's very hard to convince people that it was very easy to get pilots and to get fighters during the rebellion because they had been under the heel of the Empire for 30 years. 
whereas it's harder to convince people that the problem is on the horizon. You need to stop it. We, we kind of had an election where that became very crystal clear last year. We had a referendum. So, yes, yes. we're all feeling the effects of it. I really think that the way that that's addressed um, is also kind of tied into how this sort of hits the reset button in that it's almost like a very extreme version of Captain America, the Winter Soldier, in that, you know, that was Cap saying, OK, we've got to, you know, let the past die. But it's because oh my god, we just, you know, shook this thing and a whole bunch of Nazis came out. We've got to get this down to get rid of the Nazis. Yes. Whereas with, whereas with Star Wars, um, like both metatextually and in, the, and in the service of the story here, it's, this has become so focused on the wrong things that we have to start again or else it's never going to be about the people who are the machinery that makes it work. Like, you know, the the whole point of of the resistance having to reinvent itself because, you know, they're they're still ha- even even in the, the Force Awakens and in this, they're still working under the the way that the rebellion used to operate when they had more means. But they're still so concentrated on very few leaders that, you know, they're they're crippled by losing the bridge of one ship. Mm. And so it's like, okay, we need to spread this in a different way. We need to find a different way to get our message out. We need to find a different audience. And The Force Awakens kind of did that, and The Last Jedi makes it its mission statement of, we are not going to be able to reach new people and recruit new people to the Resistance, I mean, to watch Star Wars, if we mm. don't <laughs> stop making it insular. Like, yeah. Star Wars cannot be insular and survive for 40 more years. Uh, that bridge scene. Um, the audible gasp in my cinema when Leia is sucked out into space mm. was so loud. Mm. It was... I thought, no, they're not. I genuinely thought, no, that's it. That, that, that's how they're getting around everything. I know they said they wouldn't, but they have. They've, they're, they're... And then... Man. Holy... We appear to have gone straight past the bad things and to the best thing in the film for me. This was like top three Star Wars moments for me. Continue, guys, but just yeah, I, I just love did this not, movie. I did not see this coming. I I like the fact in the build up to it, you have Kylo Ren attacking the main ship, uh, blowing up the hangar bay, trashing Poe's X-wing again. That this may be, mm. we're all hoping this is the running gag, uh, and then he yes. attacks, goes to attack the bridge. And I'm assuming that he senses that his mother is there and he can't do it. He never fires the shot. The two wingmen do destroying the bridge, killing Akbar, killing everybody on there. And we see Leia pulled out into space and you think, well, that's it. She's gone. I actually thought, uh, because it comes back to Leia sort of floating in space and there's such people like that. I thought Kylo would like, I don't know if he could even do it, had swung around to pick, to pick him pick her up mm. to, to retrieve her. That's where I thought it was style. going as yeah. well, yeah. Yeah, but no. You, that would have been a hell see, of a redemptive moment. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you see, it's, it's like Leia's hand twitch, and she hand moves. She's, she's not frozen, and she, you realise that Leia is a, well, if she's not a Jedi, she's freaking close, because she just holds her and swoops back into the ship. It's like, wow. And that actually got a cheer in the cinema. So you got went from this sudden audio, audible gasp shock of Leia being, we think Leia's killed, mm. to Leia returning like that. It was like, it was mm. 
bloody brilliant. It's it. It wasn't quite fist pumping in the you know fist in the air yes moment that that like where Ray pulls the lightsaber to her and catches it in Force Awakens. But it was bloody good. Mm. There wasn't a single um, fake out death in this that felt like a fake out death. If that makes sense, there were every just to shock you. Yeah, yeah every every this person is going to die felt genuine to me. Mm. And. This person you think's important then dies. Ooh, that was so. Yeah. I like. I like that. Mm-hmm. What a bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that I think helped with that in that is that the the first ten minutes of this movie has like this mini story during the bombing attack that like okay. You guys have seen Clerks, I'm assuming. You know the whole, like, Randall rant about, well, what about the contractors on the Death Star? Well, it was they got they got killed, and they weren't really, I mean, it, like, the, the story about Paige Tico and her, like, trying to mm-hmm. launch those bombs, it kind of seems yeah. like Ryan Johnson saw that and was like, okay, but what if we applied that sort of empathy to the people who weren't space Nazis? <laughs> Or working for and, them. And, or working for them knowingly, the space Nazis. And then that in like that grounding of the, the personal stakes and the human cost, because we're so used to seeing, okay, well, some ships blew up. I guess there were people in there. No, he made us watch the people in the ships. And so every action scene going forward mm-hmm. carries much more weight. And so like by the time you get to, you know, say the bridge – or the uh, the light speed ramming of of Snoke's ship, everything is just so much more charged with narrative and character weight than just oh well those pixels blinked out. I guess maybe there were people there. Oh well. Uh, yeah, I would also say that opening scene story is really really important for Poe because it it sets him up to realize that he may be an ace pilot, but he's not a leader, and that's reinforced throughout the film that he yep. is an ace pilot, but he's no leader. Yeah, and it, it 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 broke my heart to see my movie boyfriend Poe Dameron screw up so much, but it also was great to see my movie boyfriend Poe Dameron screw up so much and learn from it. Mm. It that, was kind of great. That's the important thing that we see, not just with Ray learning from Luke, but you see Finn learning, you see Poe learning, mm. you yeah, see this next generation learning. Yeah, he's wrong up until the moment when he stops uh, Finn from going out to help Luke. Yes, it, that's the moment he becomes right about something. And it's again, it, it plays into that theme that another awesome moment in this film when we've Yoda turning up. But the, the fact he says failure is that most important learning tool. Mm. They have to fail to yeah. learn to grow. And yeah. that the, the one of the most powerful moments for me in that opening section was um, Leia looking at the screen and seeing how many ships she'd lost. And the just the expression on her face and the understanding that that's that's not just ships that's people mm. and that for her it doesn't matter about the victory march at the end you've lost so much that's not an unqualified victory on any level. Yeah, you you're afforded a uh, a hugging session, but you can't have a medal ceremony. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of the hugging session. Um, one of the things that uh, Abrams said on his commentary, which is really interesting if you listen to it on The, uh, the Force Awakens. Uh, is... uh, you said the interesting. Oh, no. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I'm going to spank myself. Like a... Okay. Um, okay. One of the things that J.J. Abrams said on his commentary of The Force Awakens, which is really worth listening to, 
he took the feedback on why the hell does Chewie walk past Leia and then Leia go and hug Ray at the end after Han um, is taken from them. Um, she should be hugging Chewie. And in this, Ryan Johnson was like, right, they're definitely going to be hugging at the end of this one. She, she hugs Chewie and she, she calls out his name. And it's just like, we have corrected this oversight. And um, that thus makes one of the only niggles I have about The Force Awakens. It nullifies it. Mm, yeah. um, I think that, that is that's the one weak point of this film. Chewie doesn't do much. All that. Yeah, mm. a lot of people that pack in say, there. A lot of new stories. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, to be fair, and he does get a very. I, I, never let a Wookiee knock on your door. That's all I'm taking from. I'm <laughs> taking from that. <laughs> well, he does get to fly the Falcon to draw off all the the fighters yeah, from true. from the speeders. So I mean, there is that, and that's that's yeah. a heck of a sequence. Yes, they hate that ship. Mm. Yeah. God, that's <laughs> I did say in, uh, I think this was actually in the uh, deleted scenes of our um, Rogue One podcast, Neil, that the first thing he'd say to Ray really is, who are you? Although I did it in a Joker voice. Um, like most of it's just sort of grumbling, go away, and then Chewie turns up. But the first actual thing he asks her where he's engaged with her is, who are you? It's when she goes to look at the Jedi texts. We will save the Luke and Ray stuff for the end because that is huge if that's yeah. okay um yeah I, lots of back in there just to go back to the point about the fighter pilots dying and the bombers dying there has been since the very beginning in the original trench run um a bunch of like you know she's gonna blow i'm hit that's from jedi um but uh like you know porkins buys it and red leader buys it and gold leader buys it came from behind everyone but wedge and luke buy it um and you get to spend a little bit of time with them, but they're all sort of, look at the size of that thing. No one really acts like a human being in Star Wars, except possibly Leia, sometimes. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been there the whole way through, but it's never really lingered like it does in this now. It's mm. never really gone, no, 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 these are definitely people. Mm. Um, it, at times when they were running around on the bombers, there might have been a little bit of um, what the Matrix Reloaded was trying to do with all of those pilots... You know, the people running around mm-hmm. in sweaters, like, you know, ratty old sweaters yeah. all the time. And it, like it, they failed in those Matrix movies because we don't give a flying fuck about anyone in that uh, in those two films. Um, but in this, specifically with Paige, there's like a real engagement there and a real sense of loss. And there's a moment when Poe's running to the hangar to get into his, uh, his X-Wing and that Ellen Page-looking pilot sort of like, you know, gives him a little nod. Yeah. That's Tally Lintra, played by Hermione Caulfield. And then Kylo blows up everyone and the whole hangar goes up and it's this massive explosion and at the, like, within a half second, BB-8 flies past the screen and goes, Wow! Bangs against the wall and goes, well, well my head's fallen off, I'll put it back on, like 3PO in Attack of the Clones. And at that that was the highlight of the times when the humor doesn't quite match the drama. Mm. And when it's like, not only are you following something terrible with something that's supposed to be funny, you're mashing them together so hard that we don't even know what to feel at this point. I'm like, on mm. one side of me, I'm like, oh, God, no, terrible. People have, you know, people have just died. I really wanted to see where that A-Wing pilot you know, was going to go. Maybe we'd know her name. Nope, she's dead, and everyone's dead, and, and they're fucked, and they've, they've lost their pilots. This is a terrible moment. And at the same time, another part of my brain's going, oh, BB-8. <laughs> it just, yeah, one part of your brain goes, oh, that's how his head works. 
it it <laughs> shouldn't be like that. And there are times when Ryan Johnson's humor works really well. Like when uh, Poe is talking to Hux. Okay, I'll hold. <laughs> that was like Marvel movie when Marvel movies are firing on all cylinders. Funny. Just in a way to start a Marvel movie off. Um, and I thought, oh, are they going to do that the whole way through? Like, like Star Wars is funny now. Like, it's always been funny, but in, in less of a, like, we're going to make it, like, really, like, humorous the whole way through. And this is probably the funniest of, of all of them. I've never heard an audience laugh at a Star Wars movie quite as much. And The Force Awakens was funny. Yeah. But um, really, like, there were only a couple that didn't quite land. So it feels like maybe just a little bit of an edit, a little bit of an edit in the edit mm. to just go, this bit doesn't quite work. Show it to some more audiences and see how they feel about this yeah, before you I, go to the final yeah. edit. I do wonder, though, if, and that, that one with BB-8 particularly might have been, I, I could be completely off base with this, but um, Ryan Johnson kind of poking the Disney expectation Mm. That there will be something to diffuse the. Ah, see, I don't know, but that's that's why it doesn't work. I don't like it when if it's so like, it's okay, it's satire. It's like, well, no, but that bit's crap. Like, don't make it crap on purpose and then go. It's supposed to be crap on purpose. Just how about just make it good and yeah, don't really make it yeah. crap. No, no, what what I mean is like if if somebody said to him, right, you've just had a really heavy moment. Loads of people mm. are dead. You have to put something in there to diffuse the tension. So he went right. Fine, there you go. Does that diffuse the tension enough for you? Well, that, yeah. well, that surely at that point there should have been more of a knowing wink of post, sort of looking at BB-8 and going, pull yourself together, BB, people are dead. You know, yeah. just like flag yeah. it at that yeah. stage. I can't. And literally, can't if BB-8 then that. pulls his head on, he is pulling himself together. See, I, I'm doing this for free, Ryan. <laughs> I gave you that for free. But you nice. just suppose that with later on with the... <laughs> I don't know why I like, I, I like this scene so much. Is, is Chewie eating the roast pork? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or trying to eat not the eating pork, the roast pork. <laughs> Combining it with when he goes at the other two porks, they fly off like something out of the Muppets. Mm. It's it, it's like that's like something out of like Return of the Jedi or the Jim Henson Muppet Star Wars we never got to see. And it was kind of like I love this. It's a bit crap, but I love it. Mm. Where I, I love thought... that bit, but I was also feeling really guilty as well. Yeah. Like, oh. Porks are so delicious. Where I thought that was going to go was that that it's not actually you're eating our friend, but do we not get any? And that he was going to throw it down and they would just pounce on it and devour it. Yeah, been a bit much. (laughs) We've already got people eating Ewoks, so you know it's this. We took the next logical step. Absolutely, porgs who eat their own cannibalistic porgs. (laughs) It's documented. I mean, like female hamsters will just munch down their babies if they uh, if they feel that they're threatened or that there isn't enough room for all of them. Took a dark turn. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, sorry. Well, yeah. She brought it up with a pork eating pork. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Tastes like chicken. While we're, while we're on the subject of everything tastes like chicken. Tastes like penguin. While we're on the subject of um, Poe, Dameron, um, the, the way his arc played out, mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed that. Explain because why. there's... You start off with this whole, you know, you're an egotistical flyboy, you think you know what's best. Maverick. But what you do puts people in danger. Yes, it gets results, but it puts people in danger. And then the way the back and forth between him and Holder... Laura Dern. I couldn't think of her as anything other than Laura Dern throughout this entire film. I couldn't couldn't get her name. Purple-haired Laura Dern. Purple-haired Laura Dern. Um, The way their dynamic plays out throughout the film... 
because of of where you're you're kind of you're suspicious of her with him but for me it was more well i she's just she's laura dern so i know that this is is gonna go her you know she's gonna be right and um she's gonna have the the correct way of looking at this and then it was like maybe she's not and i i really liked the fact that they played with my expectations on those but that the end outcome was not Poe is completely wrong or she is completely right. It was actually this somewhere in the middle. There is a time and a place to be impulsive and make um, decisions that are risky. Um, so like a mini civil war taking place within the framework of absolutely. the Absolutely. And, and yeah. sometimes those decisions, you won't get the result that you wanted but that doesn't necessarily make it the wrong choice. Mm. And sometimes you will get the result you wanted, but that does make it the wrong choice because of who and what you risked in order to, to do it. And mm. it was just like this constant slaloming risk assessment throughout the whole thing, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, I, I love that too, but it also leads to kind of my one major nitpick with the film. Definitely. And that's that sometimes the writing really, it held back from the audience in order to make that tension happen. Hmm. So, for example, uh, when Laura Dern decides, when Poe finds out that we're we're getting on the transports, we're going to abandon the capital ship, and he's saying, but they have no weapons, they have no shields. That is, in fact, a thing to consider, but I guess we have cloaking fields, hmm. uh, which Poe would have known about, but we as the audience didn't, and if we as the audience didn't, then that's less tense, because we have a cloaking field. Hmm. And they're like, all right, great, we have cloaking fields. But wait, we have anti-cloaking scanners. <laughs> okay? You're, you're, just, you're just making this up as you go along, aren't you? It, it was, but they better yes, not have well, anti-cloaking, I anti-cloaking have scanners. a lightsaber <laughs> negating shield, so there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's kind of my one part in the movie that I'm like, all right, you're just doing this. You're, you're holding information back from the audience to create and diffuse tension and that's kind of where the only part that I feel was really a bit of a failure mm. in the writing. It, it did occur to me later on um, that, that that scene on the bridge between them where she's like, OK, you've been demoted. All you need to know is what I'm telling you to do. Mm. Um, and I, under, I I do kind of understand why. But later on, it did feel a little bit like, well, could she not have mentioned this planet that they were aiming for? I thought when I saw it uh, the second time, maybe she's not saying it because there might be spies anywhere. And then I thought... Now, she should really just, like, yeah, take just, him to one uh, side and go, there's a planet. <laughs> yes, we have a plan. Yeah. It would have made Even more sense if she wasn't sure. She's the highest-ranking pilot on the ship. Sure, I mean... Sure. It would have made more sense if she wasn't sure if she could trust him. Like, her del- uh, her decisions seem to be at, at points obtuse. Mm. Yeah. In fact, there you go. If she's making those decisions to specifically teach Poe a lesson about just listen to what your <laughs> this admiral is, why, is telling couldn't you. Couldn't they get the one-armed guy in there? This, <laughs> yeah, is, why, this is why. Listen to your admiral. Absolutely. However, <laughs> the number of people's lives you're putting at risk in order to teach that lesson is potentially not worth it. It was my last lesson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do well, admit it, that that's, that's a bit of a dramatic cheat, um, but... I, I also like the way that, especially once Poe finds out what the plan is, his reaction kind of almost validates her decision to not tell him everything because his whole thing is, you know, being impulsive and wanting to jump in a ship and blow something up. And 
the you know he, he is so focused on the one thing once he discovers about the transports he doesn't even stop to like ask her or listen to her like instead of you know listening to her at all he's like nope i'm already you know committed to like he's already decided that he's doing the the Finn and Rose plan, and he's like, no, at this point, I'm just justifying the actions that I've already taken. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and and just say that this is this is what we're doing. And it, you know, if he hadn't given Finn and Rose the go ahead and given them those resources, then yeah, like Holdo's plan would have worked. Like if Benicio del Toro wasn't there to betray the the cloaked ships to the Empire, mm. those people would still be alive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think the the fact that that Poe's arc ends the way it does. I love where that potentially lines him up to go, especially when you consider that in the first draft of the, well, no, it was the second draft, wasn't it, of the of the Force Awakens, he wasn't meant to live. Yeah. Um, and and we've now got this character who spends most of the Last Jedi in possession of a really awesome hammer, but that means that everything looks like a nail to him, and he's yeah. by the end of it, he's starting to develop his toolbox, and that is is basically saying he is potentially going to be able to become a leader with this resistance because now he has more skills or he's he's picking up that there are more skills he can learn to be able to deal with different problems no he rhymes with luke in this because luke is a legend realizing that it would have been better if he was just a person Mm. and poe is a legend who is realizing that who comes to realize that being a person is better Mm. that if he's a legend he has to live up to that legendary status and he starts doing things to continually be a hero Mm. whereas luke has already come to the conclusion that heroism is something that leads to mistakes and to pain and to suffering and to sometimes creating a worse problem than you started with Mm. that opening again pays that off because it's a single single man x-wing attack on a dreadnought yeah, that's that's suicide. Yeah, it's Poe. Yes. We know it's Poe. It's the kind of thing Poe does. So it feeds into oh. the. And as we said, it wipes out all the. But it wipes out their entire bomber fleet. And what was it? Is I, I, I think it's about three p three crew to a bomber. Mm. Yeah, at least two. Poe so, is connected to the Force. He grew up with a Force tree in his backyard. It's a thing. He can yeah, get but, away with that shit. But most to be people sure, can. To be fair, it's only me and you that know that. Mm. I'd probably not. This is one of the half-star reviews of Rotten Tomatoes. It's just an excerpt of it. Um, issue one. I'm all for taking female characters to the centre stage. I'm going to do this like uh, Duke Amiel do hardcore. But they did it at the expense of the male characters. The men were weak, cowardly and impulsive. The women were strong, independent leaders. Again, I'm all for having strong female leads, but not like this. <laughs> you, you can't say not like this without everyone yeah. thinking of Switch. That's like a cultural <laughs> meme now. Like, like uh, You'd say not like this when you're just about to be unplugged from the Matrix and die in the real world. You don't say it when a movie t- has strong, independent females in it. Um, first off, when Bollocks? you say... Well, yes. <laughs> but when you say strong, I think you mean something very different to what 
I mean when I say strong female leader. Not everybody in this film is a strong female leader. Rose is not. Hmm. The men were weak, cowardly and impulsive. And that being a terrible thing. Yeah, that plays to the strength of the film for me because it takes the male characters and doesn't expect them to be perfect heroes all the time. When you when the men were weak is not a criticism for me. The men were allowed to be weak. They are allowed to observe their own weaknesses. They are allowed to have moments of cowardice. They are allowed to have moments of impulse that go wrong. Mm. That lets a window there for that to be analysed and for for you know male audience to to have that self-insight and self-awareness for once rather than this expectation of everything you do has to be this perfect blonde hero that goes through everything like a hot knife through butter this kind of comment and i've seen quite a few of them over the past few days comes from a desperately uh narrow comfort zone of watching the kind of movies where when a maverick gets told you shouldn't do this it turns out he was all he was right in the end and and they shouldn't do this mm. like you know whenever the maverick cop is is on to a, a guy who he's told to stay away from by uh, the police chief and he doesn't and then he gets thrown off the force and has to hand in his badge and gun that's such a trope that lyra has started going right so they're going to get chucked off the force and then they're going to lose the badge and gun and then they're going to um, um, get a clue which will then lead them to something that will uh, get them to the bad guy. They're always right and their way of doing things... It's just the fact that the system won't allow them to be that much of a bunch of mavericks. Yeah. This is Especially a com- cloud. Yeah. This is a comfort <laughs> zone that a lot of people are in and you nudge them out of it it makes them upset. Mm. Well, it makes this... them upset to, to know that their heroes can actually be wrong. Absolutely. And that, and also this idea that, that um, having women at the centre of a story is at the expense of men in the story is the same frame of mind that um, I think I said the tipping point was 30%. Mm. Basically, when women get 30% of opportunity to contribute in a meeting or dialogue in a film that's the point at which a lot of male audience members start saying they're taking over 30 percent not 50 30 well it seems like these people just aren't engaging with the material because okay if you're going to say oh well the men were weak they all have they all make mistakes and they all fail but then they bring in a literal glowing ghost muppet to say guys Failure is good. It means you learn things. Mm -hmm. And then every single male character gets a big damn hero moment. Finn gets to finally defeat Phasma. Poe leads them out of the caves. Luke does the thing where at the beginning he says, what, do you think I'm going to take a laser sword and go out and face the entire army? And he does exactly fucking that at the end of the movie, and it's awesome. Even Kylo Ren gets to be awesome when fighting the Praetorian Guard and killing Snoke. Like, every male in the movie gets to be awesome because they have earned the right to be awesome because they learn from their mistakes. Except General Hux. Hux. (laughs) (laughs) That's because space Nazis don't get to be awesome. If they were awesome, they wouldn't be space Nazis. You get to be face-planted. I I, I reckon in number nine, I reckon it's going to be Hux that undoes... um, are we, is he Ben or Kylo now? We seem to we'll call him this one. You can call him either. Ben, Kylo, Kylo Ben. I would like to see Hooks play some sort of role in Ben's downfall. 
uh, mm. because he was clearly going to shoot him when he thought he was unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny made oh, a point yeah. of uh, that there's two scenes in this movie where Kylo wakes up to find somebody close to him about to murder him in his sleep. Under You're allowed to be pissed off at that once. <laughs> the second time it happens, you've got to ask yourself, maybe I'm the common denominator in this. <laughs> Indeed. Neil, if you don't get satisfaction on that particular narrative line, I can point you to some fanfic that might. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's just I don't know. My because I'm trying not to say the I word, my brain just wouldn't let it go. It's tough, isn't it? Like it is. um, I I tend to go for compelling, but then you can yeah, you can but you can use overuse compelling as well. Engaging. Right. We okay. Somebody get the word compelling and then thesaurus it. <laughs> but it can't all just mean the same thing. Like you've you've got to work out a way to say this thing would be something I would watch and be very intrigued by, <laughs> engaged by. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Uh, I right. would watch the shit out of that plotline. <laughs> in, yeah. in my head, in my head, I see it as the worm tongue um, Saruman scene almost from mm. something. Yeah. something like that i would think would work but mm. i'm guessing it's probably going to come down to i i actually don't want ben to be redeemed no because the trouble since the new canon is and most people who've, who've probably read some of it there's not any good villains and ben mm, is a good villain a point oh god oh. <sighs> yeah Terex kind of sucks and there's just a whole line of nobodies that we keep meeting. Yeah, Ben is really good. So if, uh, if Ben is redeemed, just... a massive spaceship has to arrive with 15 villains on it. <laughs> Each of them more villainous is, than the last. This is the thing, though. A, a good villain does not get their villain arc stretched beyond believing. Mm. If there comes a point where it naturally feels like he should have he should have learned these things by now and let go of certain things and he doesn't because he's being artificially kept as a villain. Yeah. I think that's, that's going to weaken it as well. His power. I mean, Better I, that he died. Playing with the idea of where it might go, although obviously we don't want to do too much in the way of speculation, yeah. my personal preference would be for him not to redeem on his deathbed and then die. And it would not be for him to remain evil and then die, because that's just Palpatine. Or, but, but I would actually... I was to say or Darth Maul, but then in Rebels he's quite... Yeah, uh, he, And, he and uh, Clone Wars he's ah, quite yes, complex. Yes, there you go. I was about to say, you don't get this, but you kind of do in Rebels. Yeah. Um, but what I would really like to see um, with his story is for him to... Um, to to turn to come back and then basically have to go around fixing the shit he broke and actually get to see what happens when you decide that you're going to be a good guy again that you have to prove yourself. Well, ultimately, well, what message are we sending out there? Kylo Ren is the whining, screaming, entitled fanboys. Mm. That he he is a reaction, a preemptive reaction to everyone going, "I hate Kylo Ren. He's a whiny little bitch." Is he now? <laughs> Um, but so, so if, if the end result of that is, yeah, and he's evil and irredeemable and should either die or just be evil forever. No, we have to show, this sounds dreadfully patronising, we have to show people in general that you can come back from doing terrible things. You can make amends. That's Like I said, I've, I will never get tired of that as a, uh, a story trope. Mm. It's not used enough, frankly. No. Like, there is a world of difference between the things you have done and the things you are doing. Yeah. 
So, somebody said that you know Vader dies because uh, uh, he, he dies of a broken heart um, after realizing the terrible things he's done. What? Yeah, uh, I've, I've always... he dies of having his breathing tube ripped out. Well, that's what and I force thought. Force lightning to death. That's what I thought. But then I thought harder and thought, oh, actually, hang on. He was keeping himself alive with the Force, and his rage was fueling that. And you know, ultimately, the breathing apparatus was kind of a crutch. It's Watson and his cane. Um, he dies because he goes, oh, the shit I've done. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) He can't face up to that. And that ultimately gives Kylo a a, a really good reason to face up to that, to Mm. apologise. To become a better man. What's heartbreaking is he won't really be able to apologise to Carrie Fisher. He could apologise to an image of Princess Leia, Mm. or a general Leia, and we won't get that connection between actors, and that is heartbreaking. Mm. Um, Unless we get Carrie as a horse ghost. Well, that's the thing. It'll be an image of Carrie Fisher played by another actress if they do the the Tarkin thing. It won't be (laughs) Carrie Fisher. No. Not her soul. I I agree, Debbie. It'll be a simulation. The first thing I thought was, can't they convince Carrie Fisher to come back as a force ghost? I thought that too. (laughs) If anyone was going to be the first ghost employed by a movie studio, it would be Carrie Fisher. Fisher. But she would insist first on fixing the script. Yes, she would. Absolutely. Give me that thing. What is this? Episode nine. They just have a play Leia. Yeah. Uh, how many guys wrote this? God, okay, so you've got, currently got the guy who wrote Jurassic World, the guy who wrote Batman v Superman, and Colin Trevorrow. Okay, give me this. <sighs> so, I can already hear the, oh, fuck that. that that's head. the thing that really worries me about Nine. How the hell do you follow up? Like, Force Awakens, you had Michael Arndt start it off, and then he left the project. Lawrence Kasdan came in, and then and J.J. Abrams just polished it up a little bit. But, like, that aunt wrote Toy Story 3, and I don't know how much of his stuff Kazdan used, but Kazdan wrote Empire and Jedi, so it had that authenticity about it, and J.J. polished it up. Now the best we can hope is that J.J. remembers as much of he could, as he could from the polishing, and, like, to, to, to get what was originally kind of there. But, like, from the sounds of it, since Ryan Johnson's script was written after The Force Awakens... There's nothing so far. There's maybe a vague outline. I, He's I, got. A, he literally has pitched it today, so he has some ideas, mm. but it's not nothing written. I so. suspect yeah. Ryan Johnson may be called in to give it a, like a, a once over to, to give it make it in keeping with this. I think Disney will be pleased with this and how the critics have hailed it as you know this is Star Wars getting out of its comfort zone, mm. and yeah. um, I, you know I have hope for the future. They've they've not steered wrong so far. And this one is also maybe the most visually stunning of all the Star Wars films so far, just in terms of striking contrasts of red and white. I particularly like the sight of Snoke sitting in the middle of his herring red chamber. The punk out they pulled on Snoke was so good for this film. Yes. I can hear my jaws dropping. Because that's the Emperor goading Luke the whole time you want this don't you and then Vader go oh fuck this and chucking him down the shaft halfway through the conversation yeah Lord, now it's the it's the reaction everyone was having during Jedi just just kill him just kill him just fucking kill him already kill him and then it's followed by like the you know like just one of the best lightsaber battles in the entire franchise it's 
my my audience literally clapped at the end of that. Wow! It, like just spontaneously, they were cheering at the end of that sequence. Mm. However, that makes Palpatine's words completely true. Strike me down in your hatred, and your journey to the dark side will, will be, be complete. complete. Well, it's not complete. Yep. His eyes haven't changed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you only get <laughs> totally complete? Do you only get that when you're a Sith, or what? Can, can we not have that? Because I, I can live without that. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I just think he developed a sixty a day habit after the gun darkness. Oh, never God. Told him, <laughs> That's liver problems. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, I, 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 I genuinely did not see that coming because I think we're also taught not to expect that. And S- Snoke had been built up to be such a mm, thing. Mm. Who is Snoke? What is Snoke? And then it don't matter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had my theories. Oh. I was, I was like, oh, that, that, that's a clone Luke from Luke's hand, which fell with the lightsaber. And like, they're like, we're, we're giving Mars the lightsaber, but someone else got the hand, and he made Snoke. And it was like. That's a bollocks theory, and would that have been very satisfying, really? I I think the point is that's it. No matter what the film said Snoke was, it wouldn't have been satisfactory. So they just go, you know what? Just kill him. him. No explanation, because whatever the audience thinks will be better than what we decide to put in the film, because it's not going to please everyone. Mm. So just off him. So you guys go and please yourself. And also, there's then that underlying um, implication that it doesn't matter who this red pill twat is that picks you up and takes you under his wing and teaches you how to be a shitty MRA that goes around yelling at people because you didn't get your toys. It's the impact he has on you and the things he convinces you are the right things to do. Um, And that lasting impact, that's what counts, Mm -hmm. not who he was. Falls into the one of the major themes of the movie, which is it doesn't matter who you are. You're not special because of who you are. You're special because of what you do. Snoke is no more special than Ray or Rose or Finn or anybody else in this film. He's just a guy. Mm. He's a guy that can get cut in half by a lightsaber like everybody else. He's in supreme power, but that power can be taken away by the right people. And still plays into the Sith rule of two. Mm. Yeah, he's not necessarily powerful because he's powerful, like he has all of the force. He's powerful because he convinced a bunch of assholes that they should be running the galaxy instead. (laughs) That they were oppressed and that the... Uh, that the Empire was right and that the Republic is wrong. And because he can kill the shit out of them with his mind. <laughs> that helps. Yes, but, that I mean, does not, does but for all his forced mastery, it's his forced mastery that undoes him because he's, he's sat there and he's throwing thinking he's one with the lightsaber beside him going, I can read your mind. Look, he's thinking he's thinking about using the lightsaber and when he's going to turn it on, he's going to kill his true enemy. <laughs> yeah, he does. Oh. <laughs> It's like, oh, well, this is... Down I go. (laughs) (laughs) And the way that that Snoke is handled is is part of why I'm going to, like, take my flag and plant it on the... Both The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi are good hill and die on this hill. Mm. Because the reason that so much of what The Last Jedi does works is because of how J.J. ropes in the audience in The Force Awakens and makes you feel familiar in Star Wars while making it feel new and fresh and giving you new faces and doing a few new tweaks on certain things. But he still makes you feel comfortable, like, okay, this is Star Wars. This is what Star Wars used to be and used to feel like. And then The Last Jedi is like, boom, this is how we're knocking down the story pins that J.J. set up. That doesn't work nearly as well 
if you don't have the legwork to set those up. Whether or not J.J. intended them to play out that way doesn't matter because it's still effective. If you go straight from Force Awakens to Last Jedi, you're like, oh, wow, I just had the rug pulled out from under me. Well, that wouldn't work if the rug wasn't there and J.J. made the fucking rug. And it's a really good rug. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, really, together. I really do think J.J. is going to have to up his game for this next one. Mm. Mm. I, oh, yeah. He'll, he'll be forced to, and that's exciting. He's going to have to be uncomfortable. And you don't often get to see that kind of thing play out on this scale. And I am like, I don't know if he's going to succeed as well as he did with The Force Awakens, but it'll be exciting to watch him stretch because it will be to stretch. I I said it in, in the rogue one episode that, you know, force awakens had a really difficult job because it had to introduce new and old to this universe and pick up the torch and everything and move on. And, and now he's got to sort of pick up from this one, which I, 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 my initial feeling when I left was I really enjoyed it. And it's not until I've watched it a few more times, I'm going to know how I, you know, really feel about it but this this is i think this is like my second favorite right now mm. this is number two i for me it's i'm gonna have to see it again to cement it but i think it might be my favorite they work immensely well as a pair um but i i think last jedi has the slight edge on force awakens for me it's a magic trick it's the pledge mm-hmm. and then the prestige and the prestige Mm. Or is it the pledge and the turn? I was going to say it's the pledge, pledge and the turn. turn. They're going to have to do one hell of a prestige. <laughs> they there. really are. The prestige is the one with all the bells and the whistles. So yeah, that's what JJ has to pull off yeah. to actually. But do I it. do completely agree with you about um, the way they've basically fitted a new hope and Empire and Return of the Jedi mm. into these two. So it's all off the table now. It's like we've done this original trilogy now. Yeah. Now, like it's you know set it up, tear it down, new build a new yeah we we have the best cinematic version of uh book two of avatar the last airbender and the last jedi yep except that fire lord ozai is already dead so where we go now is completely clear blue water yeah yeah what if Damn. zuko didn't turn into a good guy yeah <laughs> well he didn't his... at the end of book two well yeah no, it's uh i know i'm saying that this is that's last jedi what if zuko what if he didn't what if zuko didn't Somebody uh, said that you know yeah he'll just get Zuko'd, which like they they said it in a kind of oh yeah we'll just see that we don't see that in movies not well not sustained not with characters who you know if they pull ten eleven twelve out they they don't I don't want to see these characters left yeah also by the wayside these guys will continue i suspect absolutely and one does not get zuko'd one zuko's oneself yes <laughs> be zuko'd yes indeed. okay uh one other negative i'm thinking off the top of my head and this is probably only me who goes this way was was phasma just a waste of space really she was really built up in like the promo stuff for the force awakens and everything mm. they've got a fantastic actress and it feels like they kind of wasted her it's unless a, she's yeah. not dead it I, is a valid concern but if she's escaped death a second time I, see I don't necessarily think Phasma was wasted I do think Gwendolyn Christie was wasted mm, yeah yeah, any, yeah. anybody could have done that role if this is the extent of that role mm. and you literally wouldn't know it's Gwendolyn Christie because you'd never see without the helmet off and yeah. Gwendolyn Christie is a fantastic actress and oh yeah it's like 
She's symbolic. I mean, the Captain Phasma is symbolic of what Finn fears he would have become. Maybe not that high ranking, but just this cold-blooded killing machine. This giant grey version of himself. I was going to say, at least we do get an explanation why she has the cool chrome armor. Because it just deflects blaster bolts. But it did make me go, why doesn't every other stormtrooper have that? Because it's made of vibranium. It's, uh, it's yeah. super useful. That's all they have. Yeah. yeah. That's why it. they don't make planes out of the black box material. Yes. Yeah. She got it from Wakanda <laughs> and, uh, and she's keeping it. Which means she survived the fire. Oh, that's an in-world reason why she actually might have been fine. Oh, God. And she's going to have a scar where there was the damage in her helmet. All kinds of scars, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah. If she has a scar, that means she doesn't wear the helmet. We get to get some really cool Gwendolyn Christie, so I'm for that. I, yes. I, I, I would be fine with her coming back. But yeah, she is the big, towering, hulking, grey version. The, the, the shadow, effectively. That's what the big grey villain is, the shadow. He's the version of ourself that we fear. That's not how the Force works. Can we actually talk about that? About how people don't understand that the space magic is um, magic? Space magic. I didn't want to dominate conversation with it, but if you want to do it in a fairly uh, like you know, explosive well, it, takedown fashion, go for it. It is probably time well, we got ranted all this, isn't it? Well, for one thing, imagine these people watching The Empire Strikes Back and going, wait a minute. <laughs> There's ghosts? There were never ghosts in the original Star Wars. Wait a minute. Luke can use the Force to pull the lightsaber? That was never established in the lore of the first Star Wars movie. You're just making stuff up now. Like, the the Force has been changing with every Star Wars movie in the original trilogy, and, like, all of a sudden the Emperor pulls out Force lightning. Yeah. And I find that, rather than being, oh, you're not playing by the established rules, I find that fascinating and fun and exciting when when I find out something that the Force can do that's new that we didn't or a new before. take on it i completely yeah. agree i love that and and here's the th- this this occurred to me when i was um, when we were watching it through when han says in um the force awakens that's not how the force works look at who's saying it the guy who never believed in the force in the first place mm. the limitations of the force are nothing to do with what the force can do the force can do fucking anything the limitations he's also proven the, wrong in that movie absolutely like, the, the movie proves him wrong the limitations and the possibilities of the force are entirely down to who is using it hmm. not even using it harnessing it the uh, when Luke actually says in this movie and we can get on to Ray and Luke now and then uh, and thanks to uh, Ray and uh, Ben um to consider that the Jedi are the only connection to the light is vanity. That extends to every kind of... To consider that you know everything there is to know about the Force. You've been in contact with the Force for 12 hours and some books that were written by people with limited say, imaginations. If people didn't like the, the way they used the Force at the end of the film, which I flipping loved, mm. considering it's really well telegraphed as well, if you're actually paying attention yeah. to it. No one tell yeah. them about The Force Awakens, where you pull a Star Destroyer out of the sky. What this boils down to is ultimately um, a failure to grasp the, the, the fundamentals of, of what the film is delivering to you. When Luke tells you, this is vanity, stop and listen. Absolutely. And that, that scene with uh, Ray and him basically trying to show her that you don't the, the force is not the tool 
the force is the thing that you make a connection with yeah. that enables you to then create the tools or lift rocks <clears throat> or lift rocks or whatever mm-hmm. you want to do with it but until you can make that connection nothing's going to happen hmm. I really loved his speech where he acknowledges that the Jedi basically not only failed, but massively fucked up. Yeah. They allowed Dossidius to happen. It's like, oh, thank you. We've now realised that, you know, the Jedis were kind of stupid. Yes. Well, what are, I mean, this is, this is uh, for me, it's a searing indictment of how um, organised religion gets it wrong every fucking time. That the the idea that they have all of these ridiculous rules and regulations about what's necessary in order to be able to uh, safely let children who are born strong in the force grow and, and develop. And the solution to this is remove them from their parents. Oh, smart. Yeah, that's that's really clever. Cut them off from the one thing that would make yeah. them secure in the knowledge that they don't need to lash out and hit and kill other people yeah. give them friends that aren't necessarily force users allow them Absolutely. to see themselves in context of the wider world rather yeah. than be surrounded only by other frightened force using yeah. kids let them respond to their teenage hormones for the love of fucking god see also keep them away from harry Sam. potter <laughs> Ooh. well indeed but um but yeah but at least the kids aren't kidnapped they're they're sent off to wizarding school with a lot of i mean what i felt felt like the um i was like right yes say the jedi were crap now say more about how crap the jedi were <laughs> so yeah. come on mark give it give it to me straight say they were a bunch of old perverts who kidnapped kids because it was brought up thematically by this child at the uh, you know middle and then end of the film, who's clearly obviously force sensitive. Lyra loved the broom pull, by the way. Uh, yeah, just, you know, lovely, oh, sense so of, beautiful, you know, subtle little uh, bit of use of uh, uh, prop. Um, rather than kidnapping the child, just you know, like send out a big brother Jedi and say, right, I'm going to be your like sponsor. So here's a radio. If you need me, uh, give me a call. You know, here's my Skype ID. And just like as like as soon as you need lessons in the force, let me know. The kid will go, okay, and then go away and think about it. Maybe not call them back. And if so, leave them. Let them go. Let them use the force on their own. You don't have to control it all. And I love the fact that it kind of looks like that might be the way the world is going. The idea that it's not going to be about this ridiculous strict academy where you're kidnapped and forced, uh, you know, Spartan-like to train mm. as a monk. Which it's is, like, right, you got to give up your whole life. Sorry, bye. Which is effectively what Luke regrets setting up. Yeah. That, that he was trying to reinstate this idea of the Jedi Academy and in Just, doing yeah, so, he it. ends up repeating exactly the same yeah. mistakes. Mm. If you look at the pattern of um, how Ray's development has been in parallel with how uh, Kylo's was. Basically, it it struck me that the line in the trailer from The Force Awakens where Luke says, the Force is strong in my family, I have it, my sister has it, you have that power too. I think he's talking to Ben. And I think the... The, the Force is something that has basically fucked up Ben Solo's life. Being naturally strong in the Force gets him sent away from his parents, which at presumably a very young age, you can't not make that feel like a rejection. 
You, you can't convince a small child that they're being separated from the only place of security and safety that they've ever known is a really good opportunity and um, everything's going to go fantastically. It's going to feel like a rejection. Then Luke saying that to him makes it a, a sense of belonging again. You know, you're part of this bigger story, this bigger thing. You are part of the Skywalker clan. You have this... Special blood that makes you part of our our magical kingdom. And don't even get me started on midichlorians. Well, absolutely. <laughs> My God, your, your scale is off the off the charts. You're over um, nine thousand. But then you're taking that <laughs> you're taking that feeling of rejection and saying, effectively, you are wrong to feel that sense of rejection. That feeling that you have, that bad, clamp down on that. You're brilliant. This this force uses, and then you. What's start this? You're angry. Create, don't be angry. Don't be angry. But like, then, what's that? You're afraid. Don't you fucking dare be afraid. It's, it's building up this <laughs> sense of. Oh, you're disgusted now. I'm sensing that too. And then what happens next? It oh, you're is, joyful. Get rid of that shit. <laughs> We're going to put all that in a box. Um, and then what <clears> happens <throat> is the this the being so strong in the force then results in Luke standing over him, considering killing him, which is another. A massive rejection. Again, fear, anger, fury. Is there any fucking wonder he reacted the way he did? And then yeah. Snoke brings him to a position of your your force ability is something that's going to make you feel belonging again. Um, and I'm going to make you part of this this big story and recognise your talent and recognise your skill. I recognise that you are angry. You can be as angry as you want Absolutely. in my, and, my and, pad. And, and I'm going to use that. And it basically, he's got this... This conflict in him, and it's so obvious where it comes from, is this constant push-pull back and forth that this this power that is a part of you that you can't get rid of, it is who you are, is going to result in people rejecting you and using you to for their own ends and making you feel in a fake way like you belong. And you know it's fake because sooner or later you're going to get rejected again Mm. one way or another. And then, so this is like the most twisted version of nurture that's created him into who he is now. And then if you compare that to Ray, Ray is also rejected, but it is a very, very straightforward rejection. Her parents fuck off and sell her to a slave junker person. Hmm. That's it. The Dursleys. They don't, there is no push-pull, no back and <laughs> forth. Yandu's parents. They're gone. And while she has this sort of yearning that one day they're going to come back for her, she is basically left to her own devices. I'm pretty sure that Plunkar gave us some um, basic Uncar education. Pla- Sorry? You said Plunkar, it's Unkar. Unkar, I do apologise. Unkar. <laughs> Um, gives her some basic training in how to strip ships and um, and do what is needed for her survival. But the emotional side of her upbringing is, is basically left to her. She has the freedom to develop within the, the limits of her circumstances as she will. So she's sort of the nature thing the nature mm. option she's she's been able to make her own choices she has the confidence that she can look after herself if she needs to she's the complete antithesis to him mm. um, and this is one of the reasons why they're they're being continuously drawn together is something that i find so fascinating it's it's my favorite part of this duology mm. and honestly i think if i was if i had to pick a favorite character it would be kylo ren Ray comes a very close second, and the two of them together are like 
the main thing for me, but I really like what how they've set him up. Um, and it, it's, it, to me, and I know this isn't going to be the same for everybody, but there is something very personally connecting about that conflict between the two of them. And it's not, for me, it's not necessarily about um, a relationship between two separate people. It's about reconciling these two very disparate elements of how one being can interact with with the world and how you this force of nurture that's got you so totally wrong goes one way and nature that lets you develop in your own way goes another way and how you have to find a way to reconcile those things um and i think ultimately what it comes down to is me trying to reconcile my outer persona which is hermione granger basically you know Clever, clever girl who's quite capable of taking care of herself with my uh, my inner skinny dark haired goth boy who gets really emo about everything Snape. <laughs> yeah basically Jeez. that's a fair comparison okay. um and the the moment when they fought together i was like Oh my god, this is incredible. I love this. <laughs> and I and, and that's part of the reason why I want him to have this redemption at the end. I want to see the two of them finding ways to work together and their strengths to counter each other and their weaknesses to find um ways of reconciling with each other. I just I find the whole interaction between them fascinating and I'll shut up now because I've gone on way too much. No, no, that was really, that was really good. <laughs> yeah, no, I love hearing it. If you look at the, the the visual language of Ray's interactions with the Force in both The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, and, and Luke even kind of spelled this out, is she is actually tapping into what we traditionally associate with the dark side because she uses her her hot emotions. She uses her anger and her fear, but because her entire background has geared her toward seeking empathetic connections with other people – she does not use the force in a destructive way and she doesn't have the 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 she she hasn't been conditioned to go oh those emotions are bad if i tap into those emotions i will be bad and do bad things and be a bad person so the dark side doesn't mean much of anything to her like mm-hmm. when she taps into that dark energy on on acto like luke is like you just went straight for it you didn't even try to resist and no, she doesn't. Even in the Praetorian Guard fight, she is pissed off. Mm. Like, she is, like, screaming and snarling and, and, like, she's killing people. But she's not turning. She's not falling. I mean, she's not turning evil because she has not been told this is what will happen. Ben Solo has been told this is what will happen if you use those emotions. Absolutely. And also, every and everything in his past has been showing him not, you know, to seek connections with with other people, but everything in his past has told him connections with other people are bad. You should just kill all the people. Mm, Whereas Ray is like, save all the people. Absolutely. And he is riddled with conditional love and uh, introjected values where other people have told him, this is what you have to be afraid of, but don't show that fear. This is what you have to be angry at, but don't show that anger. Um, And again, this, this underlying theme of um, the, 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 Star Wars fans, inverted commas, um, because usually fans like things. 
not in this case, but um, maybe a little too much sometimes. People who are critical of um, the way Kylo Ren's been presented and miss the point that he's trying. He's trying to teach you something. His presence is trying to show you these feelings are there you can't just stamp on them this is what will happen you'll go nuts and hack your computer to pieces this, this well, is, some of those people kid. please just do that <laughs> well, <yes. laughs> this is the embodiment of toxic masculinity yeah and yes. the result of toxic masculinity absolutely and for god's sake give yourself a break let yourself explore that and and work that through rather than just ignoring it all the time and sweeping it back under the rug because guess what that's how it forms in the fucking first place yeah mm-hmm. Because fear and anger are healthy if they're properly channeled. Like, the Jedi are like, no, there is no way to properly channel those. Just stamp them down, put them in a bottle, and never let them out, or else you will become a bad person. (laughs) We need fear and anger. Those are human things. They will save you. Fear can keep you safe. Anger can give you the energy to win. Like... That these are things that are important, and and bringing that up in in the context of Ray as a character, I think is quietly the most subversive thing that these movies have done. And I think it's really fascinating that a lot of people haven't latched on to that because they've been so busy concentrating on the trees that they've kind of missed that forest. Mm. I and it's not like- just. We burn the trees down at the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because Yoda's not just saying that our failures teach us things. He was also saying that we as masters need to pass those failures, those fears on to our students, that it is good and healthy to let them know that these are things that do scare us. These are places where we did fail Mm. because then they can learn from our mistakes. It's not just it's okay to make mistakes. It's it's okay to let other people know you've made mistakes. It's also okay to let other people make mistakes. (laughs) Yes. Ben would have. Ben might never have turned to the dark side if Luke would have just sat down and talked to him like an uncle. Absolutely, <laughs> and said, "You know what? Your power scares the shit out of me. You have way more potential in you than I ever did, and and we need to find a way to to work through that and and help you to channel that." Mm. Again, another but, thing that Jenny said yeah. was that um, after Luke tr- uh, briefly tried to kill him. Uh, Kylo then went to all the other students and said, Luke just tried to kill me. And a number of students, more than zero, went, okay, this checks out. We'll come with you without checking with Luke. And uh, <laughs> just imagine if if Draco Malfoy ran into the Gryffindor common room and went, Dumbledore just tried to kill me. And all the Gryffindors were like, we're with you, Draco. That, what? <laughs> Again, going back to my earlier point about how Luke, as a hero and as a legend, felt that he always had to act like a hero and a legend. Mm. So I'm willing to bet that as a teacher, he probably did not, you know, share with... He did not come across as a human to a lot of his students. And (laughs) hence why when he sensed darkness in Kylo Ren, he had to do the big hero thing and stamp out that darkness rather than have a human conversation. Mm, Which would have saved a lot of time and effort. And one thing that I really would expect to see um and shipping potential aside um the mm-hmm. the relationship that's developing between uh Kylo and Rey I I don't think it's going to go the romantic route this isn't going to go where you think it is but I'm 
I, I see her role is, I mean, I, you couldn't reduce her to a reward at this stage. No. That's, that's just not going to happen. But for me, the way it comes across is more that she's presenting him with a healthier model to follow, which he she, can choose whether or not he's going to do that. She's always going to be the one to reach out with it, or mm. reach out to him and say, "No, yeah. you can come back." And she's always going to be that ray. Of, she's oh god, she's going to be that ray of, ray hope. Ray of hope. Yeah, and that's why the closing of the door at the end was so heartbreaking for me because it 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 didn't feel like a closing it forever. It felt like a closing it for now. Mm. But the look on his face seemed to be one of. If 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 you are turning away from me, I must be truly lost. There's a section early in the film um, when Ray's talking, FaceTiming with him, and um, <sighs> he says it's one of the first times they speak, and he says, "You know, you have that look upon your face. That time when we were in the forest, you called me a monster." And she says, "You are a monster." And she's by the seashore, and the waves lash up against her. And he reaches up to his face. They break contact, and, he, and he, his hand goes back down again. And there's water on his glove. Um, someone I saw on YouTube was like, "Now this is the first instance of matter being transported by the force." And I thought, wasn't he just wiping away a tear? Oh, so I what he was did you guys? That was swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of many examples in Star Wars of metaphor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, wait, wait, what wait, do you guys think? Okay, it's fine with the, with any of the answers, but like, it was water being transported from Luke's planet to Kylo's hand to sh- to illustrate how strong the bond between them was, or was he just wiping away either tears because she had just been called a monster by the person that he's trying to ingratiate himself upon, and he feels the only like he doesn't feel alone anymore, and the person that he doesn't feel alone because of just called him a monster and reconfirmed his greatest fears that he Rejection. is beyond saving, which. Considering how angry and upset he gets, it's not out of the question that he might shed a tear and then that might get onto his glove. Yeah. Or is it matter being transported? Or could it just be sweat? It's a match cut. <laughs> it's a match cut. That's all it is. It's a really well, good match or, cut. Or does the water stay on his hand or does it eventually disappear like the dice? Nice. Oh, uh, yeah, because that technically, yeah, yeah. I think they were. We're smart, you guys. We're smart. (laughs) We figured it out. New Star Wars canon. They must abide by this, or we will riot. And and back to Luke, the the, the ending with him plays into the fact that he, when he turns up, he does not turn up as the man. He sort of accepts his role as being the legend, and that ending on on crate solidifies the legend of Luke Skywalker. Mm. Yeah. Not just to the rebels who all look at, uh, upon him in awe, which is really well established as he walks through, hands layer the dice and walks out into the battlefield, but to the First Order and to Ben himself, because the first reaction from Ben Solo is, lock all guns on that man and fire. Yeah. And, I th- and when that happened, I thought, well, okay, that's that's one way to kill off Luke. I didn't, because obviously with the Snoke thing, you think, well, okay. And then he's just stood there. I was like, oh. And it never, I I, I don't know why it didn't, he'd look different. He was younger. He wasn't as grey. And it never sank into my head that he wasn't there. I just assumed that he dyed his beard on the way over. (laughs) Duh. I figured that he had trimmed his beard to make him look like uh, the version of himself that uh, Ben would remember. 
just you know to neaten himself up because he's going to finally see other people and he looks like a, a hairy old ditch wizard <laughs> but <laughs> But, That's going on his tombstone, Luke Skywalker. Hairy old ditch wizard. <laughs> However, something screwy went off in my head. I was like, hang on, he's holding his Graflex lightsaber from The Empire Strikes Back, which we know was rendered onto its component parts. Something screwy here. And I was like, please, don't it let this never be... never sunk in. No? It just, it, a... To me, it didn't sink in. I just, it I don't know why. Either. Also notice that Luke never leaves any footprints in the salt but Kylo does. Very nice detail. The whole point of the fight is Luke is exercising passivity. Uh, He is not attacking. Obviously, he doesn't necessarily need to. It's feasible that he could have attacked Kylo from a distance using the Force, but he is demonstrating to Kylo the the art of uh, of self-sacrifice. He is replicating Ben Kenobi's uh, uh, self-sacrifice so that his friends and his protege could get away. It's, uh, he, you know, he's, he's rhyming it himself. So we get the Han Solo doing that for Ben, and then we get Luke, uh, Luke doing that for Ben and his, everybody else in the Rebels. It's but, also, in that conversation, he, he delivers that gut punch to, 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 to Ben as well. Yeah. If you strike me down in anger, I will be with you always, just like your father. And you can see mm-hmm. it written on his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the thing, saying I will be with you always, that's, he's a lonely boy. He feels isolated from the world. He felt rejected by his parents. Luke is telling him implicitly, your father hasn't gone anywhere. Your mother hasn't gone anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere. And I won't. You don't Mm -hmm. have to be alone. See you around, kid. Yeah. Yeah. And to an extent, Luke doesn't have to be alone either. He went to die by himself, and Ray forced herself on him, and he discovered that he needed that connection. She says, you cut yourself off from the Force, from the thing that connects all living beings. And finally he reaches out again, and who does he reach out to? But to Ben. Mm-hmm. And to add, to add, to apologize... Because he wants to be part of him again. Yeah. And the sequence where he um, becomes one with the Force was... Like, there are many moments when you don't know what's going to happen. And it, I, I'm, I kind of wish that, like, it may have felt less... Like, I still prefer The Force Awakens, but I kind of wish Ryan Johnson would come back and do the the last one now, um, because I like that feeling of I have no idea where this is going. When the uh-huh. Leia was sucked into space, when Leia, then, like, the, the doors come down and it's Leia and it's like, oh, as Poe Dameron's hold himself up in the, in the cockpit and he's gone mad. And then Leia goes, and caps him with a uh, uh, um, stun bolt. <laughs> um, specific, nice little reference to the uh, set for stun, which we've never seen any other time in between. Um, yeah, but the when Luke's looking at the sunset, I'm like, is this renewed hope or is this the end of his life? And I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I love watching films like that where they are like, I don't know exactly what's going to happen and they're not flagging absolutely everything. And it, it is both. 
It's yeah. very rare that I wish I could wipe a movie out so that mm. I could see it again fresh. Ten Cloverfield Lane is another one of those um, yeah. kind of like, yeah. I, I wish I didn't know again so I could yeah. watch this. Most films, I like seeing them over and over again so that I can I can take them to pieces and see things that I missed this, the first time round. Mm. But this, I, I did come out of it thinking, I want to go back. I want to go back and see it all again and for yet, the first time. when you see it the second time, and I'm going to guess subsequent times, because The Force Awakens gets better every time I watch it. Rogue One gets less good every time I watch it. I'm going to guess that at, since this was better the second time I watched it, it's going to get better as we just like as we settle yeah. into the shape of it. I have a big shelf collection of Blu-rays of films that I love to revisit and are like a comfort, even if they're sometimes disturbing films. Like uh, Pan's Labyrinth is unsettling to watch, but it's comforting in a beguiling way. There is worth to films that get better with every viewing. Guardians of the Galaxy gets better every time. Guardians mm-hmm. 2 gets better every time. Wonder Woman <sighs> gets better every time. Deadpool gets better every time. Other movies which don't have comic book related things get better every time. <laughs> Princess um, Bride. Princess Bride, of course. Oh, yeah. This is a film that wrong foots you when you first see it. But in 20 years, it feels like kids will be going, yeah, well, yeah, obviously Last Jedi, best of the lot. <laughs> because yeah. they'll have the broader view of it, you know. And yeah. uh, I, I said that I, I like the Force Awakens, um, you know, but most of all. And, uh, and James Batchelor, one of my very good friends, said, uh, "No, it's interesting. You didn't say Empire. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. It's like, what do you mean? I'm not saying I'm wrong. It's my favorite. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I secretly prefer Empire, but I'm not telling myself that. <laughs> <laughs> but Empire does. Empire is." A fantastically well-made movie. It is really tight. It is the best that Star Wars could be back then. That is that is apparent. And it feels like Star Wars is still feeling out the best that Star Wars can be right now. And I feel like it's going to get better. I like that you brought up the that scene where we don't exactly know what's going on with Luke when you know just before he becomes one with the Force. Um, I I walked out of that. That was the scene that made me cry because it references my favorite scene in Star Wars, which yeah. is binary the sunset. first and the first one with the twin sunsets where he's looking out into the horizon and you know he sees adventure and greatness and things out there. He sees a life out there. And now we get to watch him at the end of his life looking at the same thing with different eyes. And I like to think that he saw hope in the, in the horizon the way he did as a child. A child. Yeah, child. Boy. <laughs> I like to Both. think that he saw hope in the horizon that way. Mm. I think he saw the next adventure. Yeah. That's Maybe. what I like to think. And the fa- That's a good way, too. But that, that know, when sh- the force theme swells yeah. as he's doing this again, it's... It made me cry, and I loved it. And that shot is twinned with the fact that the the boy with the broom, the hasn't yet unknown boy, who yeah. you know ultimately <sighs> doesn't even we don't even have to go back to that boy. He is representative of so much. Same as Phasma is representative of uh, of, of everything Finn could be. There's there's symbolism going on there. There's, there's themes going on in yes. here. You didn't see the <laughs> themes. You've got to see the themes. Um, but it's it's now. Starlight for the boy. It's it's the the sunset is is down, but the the sky is full of light, and the Millennium Falcon swings streaks across, and he's wishing upon a shooting star. It's it's, it's wonderful, but mm-hmm. it suggests that when you're looking out into that sky trying to find something, 
there's other people out there trying to do the exact same and there's a connection between all of us and there you have your force Mm. and i think for the the whether this was deliberate or not i don't know but this was the way it came across to me the fact that it is a little blonde boy almost seemed to be a see just because it was a girl this time doesn't mean it can't be somebody that you can connect with next time. That's how this works. There are numerous heroes that anybody can be a hero. It doesn't have to be somebody that that you look like perfectly. Yeah. yeah. It's um, in fact one thing I also liked about something that Neil said already was you know, when Luke is making himself into a legend, yeah, he's doing it for the first order and for the rebellion. And for those kids who told that exact story. Yeah. Yep. I loved that. Especially Yeah. Yeah. I loved watching kids in a Star Wars movie playing with Star Wars toys. Yeah. And I love the way it feels like it's... Okay. um, It it feels similarly to the end of Mass Effect 3 where it's tell me another story about the Skywalker. Bingo. That's what... yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Yes. I had not twigged that until just... Thank you. That's why we have you on the show. <laughs> myth making, and you don't get to see myth making expressed so purely and so uh, so intuitively a lot. And just e- even if the rest of the movie were kind of forgettable, just that last scene would make it worthwhile for seeing for seeing that done so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we all think of the return of Puppet Yoda? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. With that. Yeah. Not just Puppet Yoda, slightly crazy Puppet Yoda. Although it did look slightly as though he had swelled. Yeah, he he had a weird, like, (laughs) fat mouth. Mm. Uh, But, like, again, the second time, you kind of get used to the fact that it's not the exact original puppet, but it's uh, it's a version of Yoda who is... Maybe it's Yoda who's slightly younger? I don't know. It's the real Yoda. And there is actually a fundamental difference between Yoda in the prequels and Yoda on Dagobah and this felt like the one that we had last seen um, saying goodbye to Luke Mm. and like that everything in between there including even his appearances in Clone Wars which were much better than the uh, the prequels and um, even though there wasn't Frank Oz and a brief appearance in um, Rebels I'll I'll spoil at least that because I can say you know he's in it a bit it felt like okay you passed away when I was a small boy and you're still here. And that felt so comforting. Notice that I love the fact he called him Young Skywalker. Young Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but he's 900 years old. <laughs> I know, good. But you're just, not. It's just so nice seeing this grizzled old man, this grumpy <laughs> hermit, and he goes, Young Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> compared to Yoda, well, everyone is really young, young compared to Yoda. <laughs> yeah. Young Kenobi. <laughs> Yeah. Vader is still young Skywalker fan. But yeah, yes. what, go back to Return of the Jedi. Um, people may not have had time to do this, but go back to Return of the Jedi now. Watch that scene with uh, where Yoda goes and um, the whole... He even references it in his lines in The Last Jedi. He, you know, Luke, when gone am I? The last of the Jedi will you be. Pass on what you have learned. And he did, and he failed. And then th- this whole sequence is about Yoda telling him... Yeah. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. 
That's from yeah. Elizabethtown, isn't it? It is. Oh, yes. shit. It is, yeah. A lot of people don't like that movie. But it's a film about accepting failure. And that's, again, that's possibly why people don't like it. Also, because Orlando Bloom is not the best of actors. But this is the thing. He's saying to him, pass on what you have learned. He's not saying, teach new people how to be Jedi. He's yeah. not saying, this set of skills and tricks that you have figured out, mm. go and pass that on to the next generation of knights. He's saying, pass on what you personally have learned. That feeling of um, power when you were faced with the Emperor and realised that you couldn't strike him down because it would make things go bad. That feeling of redemption when you were able to bring your father back. That feeling of connection when you worked out who your sister was for the first time. Mm. Those are the things that you've learned. Pass those on. All those things that are of so much more value than these crumbly old yeah. texts, which were not page turners. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He's also saying, I failed. Yeah. Mm. Yes. yeah. Luke also did not complete his training. Mm. Luke also took off in the middle of his training before he finished his lessons to save his friends, just like Ray did. And I think there was a certain amount of Yoda being like, mm, see what it feels like, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> could have but grabbed you and chokeslammed you, could, I could. Again, that is a fundamental difference between Yoda of the prequels and Yoda of, um, of Empire and Return of the Jedi. That is a Yoda that's fucked up, that has made a massive miscalculation and error of judgment, and it has resulted in so much death and so much destruction. Yeah. And Luke's, like, biggest failure was also one of Yoda and Ben's failures as teachers because they were saying, go kill Darth Vader and go kill the Emperor. You have to kill him. You have to kill, 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 kill your daddy. And, like, Luke's biggest failure resulted in him finding out that connection on his own terms mm. and then getting time to to deal with the with reckoning of it and then going, no, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to deliberately disobey both my teachers and try to save him. And they were wrong. And so Luke's greatest failure leads to his greatest success. So, like, of course, he has to pass on failure because that's how you learn to succeed is you have to fail first. Carrie Fisher's final lines, I think apparently she may have improvised or written them herself when she said, we have everything we need. And just that that wonderful, like, it's not really a celebration, but that union at the end that that they get away. It's what Rose said about um, saving what we love rather than destroying what we hate, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a wonderful way of epitomizing the difference between the, uh, you know, the, the darker and the lighter sides of mankind's soul. That's all Star Wars has ever been about. It's the battle between our inner demons and our better angels. And that scene where Finn was going to sacrifice himself again, they had me convinced this was going to be it. Me and too. it turned into another incredibly powerful scene. So yeah, Ryan Johnson's got it, and uh, I'm I'm sorry I ever doubted him. It's a, it's a triumphant film, and um, I think ultimately we're going to have to just accept that every Star Wars film that comes out is going to get a backlash of some kind. Like it's going to be like Rogue One with us going, eh, it was kind of light on character, or it's going to be from the other side of this didn't do exactly what I wanted it to do. And then throughout the entire film, not only is he a like a crazy old man in a way, like a broken old man. And yes, you can be like, oh, it's because his decision has hurt, haunted him. Well, he has the opportunity to change his decision and go and help them, which he doesn't. I don't oh. care if you say, yes, he did. He made a ghost of himself. Oh, come on. 
So basically, he's a massive pussy throughout the entire film, and then even dies a pussy because he doesn't physically go and help him. He's too scared, so he conjures up this force ghost instead. And then they kill him anyway. That's, again, another cop-out. Why not have Luke take him to that salt planet, have him face Kylo Ren, let him actually be a badass instead of making us think he's a badass when really he's just making everybody imagine him. And then he dies of, what, exhaustion? Fucking so stupid. There's a lot of this. A lot of the complaints are because the heroes that they wanted to see be total badasses, slaughtering and killing, like Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One, they wanted to seem just so badass. And they weren't. They were all just pussies. Yeah. I don't want to be in that club. We already accept it with the Marvel movies now, so... Yeah. Although it doesn't seem to feel as as vitriolic. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a bitterness there, which is... A little bit exhausting, but um, uh, maybe they'll shut up with the Han Solo movie. They won't. But there's, no. <laughs> this isn't my Han Solo. I hate this boy. But basically, yeah. what needs to happen? Did Lando is... have to be played by a black guy? Oh. <laughs> I think it's great that they're including Asian girls in the Star Wars movies now. But there's millions and millions of really cute, attractive Asian girls, and out of all of them, they had to choose her. Probably one of the ugliest Asian girls I've ever seen. It was like they just went to a Chinese restaurant down the street and then randomly picked a waitress and said, Hey, do you want to be in our Star Wars film? We're looking for an Asian girl. You look Asian. Both of Kelly Marie Tran's parents were migrants from Vietnam who fled the country after the war. Cultural Awareness 101, China's not too fond of Vietnam. (sighs) It's just like... They want an Asian girl in the movie so they can say, hey, look, we have an Asian girl and we have a black guy. Our film's multiracial. We're not racist. No, they're not racist. They always do this when it comes to Hollywood movies. When they have an Asian character, a guy or a girl, they pick a really ugly Asian actor to play the Asian character. And then for the white characters, they choose really attractive, good-looking white people. And it's not just for Asian people, it's black guys as well. They choose the ugliest black guys they can find to represent the black characters. I'm going to stop now, because this is ridiculous, and indicative of the general state of complaint about this film. It's a slime pit of the internet. Bad teachers have led to bad students, who themselves are becoming bad teachers. That guy's name, so that Disney can contact him next time they need to measure the most attractive Asian girl specifically for him. He has the enviable title of Hiding in My Room. So let's leave the toilet people behind and get back to why this is indeed, in fact, a beautiful film. But the, I think if the, if the essence of Star Wars is for everyone, can continue to be the underlying meta-narrative, it will basically end up being, I hate this, it's horrible, it's not my Star Wars. Well, that's okay. It loves you. (laughs) Well, I will only see it six more times. Today. (laughs) Today. Um, (laughs) Honestly, if you saw it six more times, you would probably get into the groove of it. Almost inevitably, you'd you'd start to accept some of the things that you felt were... Uh, weaknesses um that's again this makes me feel like me saying you're all wrong if you didn't like it maybe give it another go is i would at least uh, advise that if you've sat through all of us saying this you have to at least accept there's maybe some things you missed if you hated it the first time i thoroughly agree with you because i was the one that rolled out of the force awakens disappointed and not quite liking it yeah i love it now
Yeah. Uh, another thing, and the final thing we're going to leave on, that was brilliant and wonderful, John Williams' score. This oh, was yes. a musical journey back through Star Wars. The Force Awakens, he established a bunch of new themes, and I've heard some people say that they were disappointed with it because it didn't... It was actually really quite subtle, The Force Awakens, just in terms of, like, we're going to evoke some of the older ones, but we're not going to be just immediately coming in with clattering new themes. But then, in The Last Jedi, when he starts playing the uh, Resistance, the March of the Resistance... Even people who hadn't been listening to the soundtracks go, I feel, I feel like I know this music now. It feels like it's the, the new Rebels music. And Kylo Ren's... And Ray's... And then you've got the Force theme, specifically surrounding Luke. And then you've got Leia's theme, played with this incredible delicacy and bombast at times when she comes pouring back in again. And the, it reaches this peak when Luke comes in and sits down with Leia. It goes from the Force theme to Leia's theme. And when he mentions Han, we're never really gone. There's a little bit of the romance theme in there. And it plays the Luke and Leia brother and sister. So you've got four themes all woven in together. And they, they match perfectly. And they were stretched out originally over the original Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. But they feel totally organic here. And they're playing in the eighth movie. And this was a goodbye. This was a goodbye. And it's what it should have been and more. going to be tough yeah. to top this is uh yeah. yeah watching the credits and when they do the tribute to carrie fisher and switch to leia's theme in the middle of the credits i was like oh wow because mm-hmm. it's, it's so iconic and so instant yeah something about to our princess i think it was what was what they said something there. along those yeah yeah and seeing her she, her daughter's in there she's the uh, uh rebel with little buns on top of her head just at, at yeah. slight angles and the blonde hair it's mm-hmm. you know that was nice to get her to get some more screen time she's in the force awakens as well briefly and as there was some also side note this is nothing to do with really the film but the promo photography for this is stunning i mean ryan johnson has a great eye for a shot and there's some some of the most you know visually arresting moments in this film of the of the whole star wars canon so far but just the like when the actors get interviewed in Vogue magazine or Cosmopolitan or something, the photography um, shoots they do with just this, this wonderful clothing and the backgrounds and the colors and the sharpness and the detail, it's just, it highlights these beautiful actors and they're, you know, brimming over with personality. 
and I just I love to see them getting getting that spotlight in a non fantastical sense. You know, kind of the one thing that uh, we didn't really get into it, that I particularly loved was how funny Luke was. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You feel that? That's the force. I can feel it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> that felt like such a Yoda thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. When he rolled his, when it, just the nice little eye roll when she physically reaches her hand out. <laughs> when he... But that—that's when the humor's working in this film. It feels very human. It feels very kind of let's just, um, you know, quit beating about the bush and just do like what it would be like if these people were. Just, you know, having to put up with this shit in real life. How would they cope? What kind of humor would they use? And it did actually feel, most of the time, you know, authentic. Not necessarily authentic to Star Wars to date, but authentic as a kind of a heightened version of Star Wars. An evolved version. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, start with Brendan. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at... BLC Agnew. You can find me on the internet either at normannerd.blogspot.com where I write reviews. Um, I also contribute to the synapse.co website, which is C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co if you just need more movie stuff in your life. And Carol and Debbie? All right. Um, you can find me on Twitter at moonpanther 22 um, and you can find Sequentially Yours at sequentially-yours.com. That's where I do deep dives into comics the, almost as well as we do on movies here. Just not quite as good. And Debbie? Uh, mainly, you can find me some on uh, Sequentially Yours. Um, Tyro and I do Cinematically Hours where we talk about comic book movies. I am either Debbie Morse or Best at 8300 on Twitter. So... Hit me up. I'm on there usually pretty often, so I'm happy to chat. And Twitter is my jam, definitely. And Neil? You can find me over on YouTube diving into the history of either a video game or video game companies or hardware. That is uh, YouTube.com, The Kid Dog. Thank you very much. And we will end on the end credits music. And uh, the, I, I will leave deliberately all of the Princess Leia-related music in there as well so we can actually um, kind of make our peace with that. It's still not over. We are, like, episode nine will still grab us there regarding Carrie Fisher. I still... I, I don't. We will that, be back. That wound is always going to be kind of raw for me. When they recast Princess Leia and, as a young uh, character, That's there's still going to be a lot of legacy there. But, I mean, that's that's fine. I'm fine living with that, that pain because I'm happy with what she's done. And uh, mm. we recommend... What's the, what's that book that uh, you got of hers? Uh, I've got a couple books. Um, Wishful Drinking. <laughs> Yes, I have the audiobook of that read by Carrie Fisher. Oh, fantastic. It is bloody awesome. I haven't heard the audiobook yet. I might have to get that one. Mm. I, I recommend if you can get the audiobook, it's just Carrie Fisher reading it to you, and it is glorious. She reads it herself. Incredible, yes. Done. Get it. Christmas present for us. Cheers. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Um, <laughs> also, the movie uh, with uh, Shelley McLean and Mel Post- Street. Postcards, Postcards from the, from the edge. edge. Totally worth watching. It feels, well, it's, it's a lot of it is autobiographical, um, and it feels very authentic. So, 
This has been us for Star Wars Episode 8. We will see you next year for Han Solo, which has got a lot to live up to, but I feel oddly optimistic about this one. I'm not, not sure why, just they seem to be doing quite well. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And may, may the, the force be with you. you.